An old growth tree gently rotates in the air as it plummets to the ground far below. Trembling leaves are ripped from their branches, creating a billowing trail in the sky. The canopy below approaches rapidly, as if to embrace its returning sibling. The tree bursts through, violently rotates on caught branches, then crashes directly onto the camp. Varys and Peebax leap to the ground amid a hail of splintered timber. To arms! To arms! Sybil Silvertongue quickly fights her way out of her bedroll, the impact of the tree mere feet away from her. Thanks, that would have been nice a few moments ago. Across from Sybil, Syndra is pinned beneath a log. One sharply broken branch has dug itself into the top of her chest. I see our winged foe from yesterday hovering above the camp. I take this time to push myself out from beneath the log and hide myself. I have to take a shot. Sandra turns in such a way that dislodges the branch from her chest, grabs her crossbow, then digs her nails into the soil to crawl out on her belly. Once free from the tangle of branches, she kneels, hidden from view within the leaves. She winces as she loads the crossbow and raises it, tracking the shadows circling roughly 70 feet in the sky, waiting for an opening. We've tackled this foe before. I know its weak spots. I loose my bolt and it goes straight for the neck where I hit it before. In a display of critical accuracy, the bolt slams beside her bolt from the previous battle, which is still protruding from the bird's neck. The rock falls 10 feet before recovering. Ha! Fuck you and your nest! Across from Sundra, Varys sees Guy's tent smashed in by a tree branch. I sidestep, taking position between Guy and the rock, readying my bow. I knock an arrow. Do I shoot to wound or shoot to kill? To kill, I take aim at its heart. He releases the arrow, which grazes the bird and clips feathers from its body, doing no damage. Ah, a miss. I steady myself, knock another arrow, and aim for the heart once more. As Varys tracks the bird, his bow catches on a nearby branch moments before he releases, sending the arrow ricocheting off of a tree and into the canopy. Ah, oh, another miss. I must distract this creature. I dart to the edge of the clearing. To me! To me, foul creature! As Varys attempts to distract the rock, he who who solidifies and emerges from the felled tree near Guy's destroyed tent. Disoriented but ready, I... Extricate myself from the collapsed tent, breaking the outer fabric, and ready my weapons. I look around for cover and look behind one of the limbs of the fallen tree. I scramble to my feet. I see the rock flying above us, and I know I need to act fast. I need to do something big. I close my eyes and bring my hands together. I take a breath in, and I speak the word. Impossibly thin blue and pink glowing lines materialize and extend in midair, shaping into a hollow dodecahedron around Sybil and the rock's head. The shape around the rock's head then radiates a bright blue light and crackles psychic energy. Forts of purple lightning arc from the magical lines and into the bird's head. Disoriented and in pain, it falls another 10 feet closer to the ground. I look over at Peebax, thinking he might be ready to attack. It's your time. Show us how you led those armies. I stand up straight after watching the boat 
fire its way into the rock's neck and blood showering down from above. I look at my team and decide to cast bless upon all of them. Peabax whirls around, thrusting his arms to the sky. I stand defiantly, arms akimbo, cloak billowing behind me as I cast the spell. Beams of yellow light shoot down from three feet above each of the party members, causing their entire bodies to glow for a split second before slowly fading. Peabax clenches his fists and lowers his arms, trembling with strength. May your attacks be true and deadly, my friends. Confused, the rock extends its claws and dives at Syndra. She ducks as the massive talons swipe overhead, billowing her hood. The rock then struggles to gain altitude, attempting to use the treetops as leverage under its wings. While the bird thrashes, Peebeck seizes upon an attack of opportunity. My hands warm from casting the bless. Now heat up with guiding bolt. Peebeck steps forward, defiantly raising his arm. Lightning arcs from Peebax's hand, momentarily lighting up the woods with an electric blue light. As the focal point of the lightning, Peebax's reflective armor leaves residual mirage streaks in the eyes of those who witness him. The bird's smoking feathers stand on end, then quickly fall back into place. Its feathers continue to glitter blue with magic, condensing near and highlighting weak points on its body. The rock then raises its beak, preparing to spear Sendra again. Vile bird, I will end your bloodline. Blood I spit. Sybil's magical cutting words distract the rock, whose plunging beak splinters the branch next to Syndra. The rock, behind me, tries to attack. <laughs> Misses. She quickly shifts her center of gravity as the rock struggles to extricate its beak. Once free, the bird flaps its wings and again uses the treetops for leverage to take to the skies. I ready my crossbow again and take the shot. Seem familiar, bird? Syndra fires at a glowing spot on the rock's neck. The bolt connects and the massive bird shudders in the air, barely recovering in time to remain aloft. The glittering blue magic covering the rock's body quickly fades away like glowing water droplets fading from view. I know what I must do. I fling my bow to the ground, reaching back with my other hand into my pack grabbing a potion, hoping it's the right one. I sprint towards the tree, quaffing the potion mid-stride, and as I feel my body growing in size, I leap from the tree, reaching for the rock's feet. I said to me! Varys doubles in size in midair, then grabs onto the massive beast, wrestling it down to the branches below and keeping it from rising further into the air. I see an opportunity, and I seize it. I run across the fallen tree, grab onto Varys' leg, and prepare to climb up him to sink my twin rapiers into the bird's flesh. The bird mightily heaves its wings, lifting itself, Varys, and Yi off the ground. Varys violently twists his grip on the bird, ceasing any further ascent. They fall back to the ground. I feel Varys' legs shift beneath me as I'm trying to cross his knees, and I, I lose my grip, and I crawl. 
Gi tumbles a short distance to the ground, landing near Syndra. Varys continues to grapple with the bird's tail feathers, keeping the bird at 29 feet above the ground. I quickly get up and I switch my rapiers out for my longbow. I see my friend struggling with the bird, and I wonder if I can help further. Bird, is there something funny? The spell known as hideous laughter has no effect. The rock doesn't have the intelligence to understand her words, negating the foundational effects of the spell. Varys lifts into the air again, only to wrestle the bird back to the ground. I produce my light crossbow, taking close aim to its face box and let loose a bolt. The bolt cuts through the air and embeds itself in the rock's back. Kebax lowers his crossbow and raises a hand to the sky. A sphere of otherworldly light begins to grow above the rock. I produce a spiritual weapon from my imagination. A giant hammer. The sphere crackles and vibrates with bolts of lightning arcing into its center mass, forming a four-foot warhammer above the rock's head. Pebax continues concentrating as Sendra finishes reloading her crossbow. I take my aim again. This rock will not get away. I aim for its throat, knowing this bolt will land a third time. Sindra's bolt hits the throat, but the bird continues to struggle against Varys, lifting him into the air again. Varys swats at the rock's wing, sending it off balance. He then hooks his arm around the wing and wraps a leg around its torso. They begin tipping backwards towards a boulder. Feeling my feet come back to the ground. I know this rock is losing strength. I take it in my arms and force its head to the boulder. Varys twists at the last second, breaking his fall on the boulder with the rock's bloody body. Struggling to stay on top, the hold he has on the wet, squirming rock is difficult to maintain. With its head against the stone, I lean in and whisper, I'm sorry. Gi has recovered and armed herself with her longbow. I concentrate the energy of the forest. Mark the rock in a special manner and shoot with my longbow. Using her skills as a ranger, Gi sees every obstacle to her mark disappear. Even Varys appears to become fuzzy as the rock appears to grow more defined in her eyes. Her arrow connects, sticking out from the rock near Varys's arm. I request that he who meld through the trees and attack the rock from the side closest to it. <laughs> On the other side of the battlefield, he who who responds to Gi's request, leaping into a nearby tree. He then emerges from a tree close to the rock, flying out of it, claws upraised. In its struggle to escape the pin, the rock flails a mighty wing, knocking he who who back into the depths of the forest. Varys is holding the bird down, and it looks extremely hurt. I, I think it's not long now, so I approach with my rapier drawn, hoping to attack it and take its final breath. Angling for a clear opening, Sybil maneuvers herself near the rock's back and stabs into it. Sybil's bravery inspires Peabax, who decides to enter into the fray. I stride over to the downed bird, walk right up to its cursed head, brandish my vicious flail, 
and smash it. The spiritual hammer rains down blows upon its body. Kebax juggles, hitting the rock with his flail and floating spiritual weapon, landing one mighty blow after the other. I rain yet another blow with the flail upon the rock. The flail thuds against the rock, cracking a bone. The rock shudders and attempts to feebly claw at Varys, but misses. The rock, now bloody, pinned, and receiving blows from all sides, is losing the will to fight. Its spasms now fewer and farther between. I take my sights at his neck once again. The rock turns to look at me, just as I release my bolt, finishing the creature with one last scream. Sonic Realms presents, presents Into the Feywild, part two of a Dungeons and Dragons audio saga. Feeling the creature struggle, its death throes. Tears start forming in my eyes. The massive bird relaxes and becomes still, a kind of stillness that can only mean death. Everyone warily watches the rock, weapons still trained. When it shows no sign of movement, Varys releases his grip and rolls away from the bird's bloody corpse, catching his breath on his back. The others cautiously sheathe their weapons and assemble around the body. I take no pleasure in killing things, but this, this creature just wouldn't stop. I cannot imagine the torment it must have been in after our last encounter with it. I wish it peace. I kneel down in front of the body, knowing and watching how much suffering it endured this entire time. And I perform last rites and cross myself, bow deeply, it merely did what a rock would do, only that and no more. Anyone for breakfast? After Peebax's suggestion, I draw my carving dagger and kneel beside the rock's body. It would be a dishonor to let the meat go to waste. Still enlarged, Varys begins to cut up the rock's fresh corpse an endeavor which would take twice as long were he his usual size. He who, who returns from the forest, a spindly claw palming a wound on top of his head. Sybil and Guy start extracting their gear from their demolished campsite. Guy, since you've spent some time here, have you ever actually seen the Chikora tree? No, not yet. Well, you know you, where you've been, right? You, you know uh, we won't retrace any of our steps. You should know where you haven't been. Nor- normally, yes. I can be quite confident in any forest situation, but, I, I mean, you've been here, you understand. It shifts behind you, uh, in front of you, around you. I haven't been able to tell anything except that the sun sets in the north. What about your friend? He who who? Did they know anything about this area? I mean, they're from here. I asked 
grasp he has on the terrain. He who laughs loudly and pauses. Laughter echoes through the woods around them as he who who listens. He then turns to Guy, starts laughing, and waves his arms in strange gestures. All right. From what I understand, he mentions knowing of a tall wood, but he claims not to have gone as far as the Great River or the Mushroom Path. He does mention that his friends, you've, you've heard them laughing before, um, they communicate through the wood, through the laughter. We could possibly use them. The Great River and the Mushroom Path, are those, are those the way to the center of the forest? I assume these are landmarks that, uh, that they've developed between themselves. I ask he who to expound upon what he means by the Great Tree. I ask him if the tree bears fruit, and I ask him in what time period the tree bears the fruit. <laughs> he who makes a quick bow, then scampers into the forest. Moments later, he returns, holding something in his hand. He extends his arm to Guy. I hold my hand open, accepting what he who has brought. He who who drops an acorn into Guy's waiting hand. He explains to Guy that he doesn't know what she means by the great tree, but that they are in the tall wood. He points to the very tall trees, then communicates that they drop these fruits, meaning acorns. Guy looks a little disappointed. Ah, yes, the tall wood is the tall trees. So we're in a strange place, um, and we have no idea where we're going or what we're looking for. I, I... I request he who to go out, speak with whom he can, and come back, bringing the information in his time. He who who leaps into the bark of a nearby tree. All right. I've sent him off to have his conversations with the others. He's, he's going to do that in his own way. In the meantime, he'll find us. Sendra nods, then shifts her gaze to the camp. I think right now we eat breakfast and we take a short rest before we head out. We can, but we should remember time passes differently here and our mission is critical. Well, it appears that we can't actually do anything until... Sorry, he who who Is that his name? Yes. Until he who who returns, there's not much for us to do. We can explore in the meantime. Though, again, and, and I apologize for contradicting you, but if I'm correctly understanding, the woods themselves actually change. We could rest and regenerate for a, uh, a small, small amount of time. We should, we should. But I think that once we're recuperated, we could just head away from the direction that we came. We came in at the edge of the wood. If we head away, we should head towards the middle. He who who can obviously leap through trees. He'll find us. If we do intend on exploring, we shouldn't go by line of sight in this woods. We should follow the sun. Yes. 
I would think it's quite risky to move in any direction without hearing back from Hihuhu and his friends. Um, I, I just want to make sure we don't get lost in an unfamiliar place. Gi, you've been here for six months, and you don't... You didn't know where you were at at any given point, is that correct? Well, see, that's the thing, is we're currently lost, so whether we stay here or explore, we're currently lost, so... Currently lost, but currently safe from any threats. I'm not sure about that. Safety is such a fleeting state of existence. Okay. I think in these woods it could turn at any second. Of course, if you guys would like to venture out, I will accompany you, and I will do everything in my power to make sure that we remain safe. That said, I am objecting. I don't think we're safe anywhere in this woods. We may be currently safe, but that means when we were coming into the woods, we saw something crashing in the trees. So that could come back. I mean, we can stay here and hide, if that's what you would prefer to do. But either way, we're not safe here. I just want to make sure that he who who uh, understands where we are and where he'll need to return to give us the correct information. Oh, yes. As I've said, he who he will find us. Okay. Where should we head? Greetings, travelers. I couldn't help but overhear that you're lost. If you'd like, I can tell you where to go. Nobody seems to be around. Varys is the first to see a small, humanoid fey creature with rosy cheeks and dragonfly wings hovering nearby, expectantly looking at the party. Leaves and moss cover its body, resembling a patchwork garment. Following Varys's eyes, Sendra is the next to see the fairy, though she thinks it's more likely a pixie. She knows pixies are traditionally sarcastic, tricksome creatures. Gi then hones in on the tiny being, knowing they can detect people's thoughts on occasion, as well as cause mass confusion and illusion. She also knows they are capable of forcing an enchanted sleep onto people, as well as other forms of enchantment and illusion. Though the pixie is about one foot tall, its magical abilities could prove fearsome. Sybil immediately distrusts the pixie, remembering an old rhyme regarding fey folk. You can trust me, said the fey in the wood. I'll show you the way as only I could. You can trust me to find the path back home. Better than wandering lost and alone. But for your trust, you'll earn the trickster's laugh. For your trust, you'll earn the springing trap. The pixie has a smile on its face. Its big, wide eyes seem inviting. I eye the pixie warily. I look from it to the others. I don't think we should trust this particular creature. Yes, I think that it's, uh, it'd be a bit risky. More risky than trying to find your way in the Feywild alone? Why, that's ridiculous. The fairy has a point. The pixie steeples his fingers. Listen, I assure you I'm only trying to be helpful. And you know, I won't lie. 
I'll want something from all of you in exchange for my services. Can you tell us what the something is now? Sure, absolutely. I heard you playing last night, and I gotta say, outside of the courts, it was some of the most wonderful music I have heard, and I have not been to the courts in a long time. So every night that I travel with you, you will play music. This is your only condition? Not at all. That's my condition from you. Pardon me, fairy, um, court. What kind of court is this? Is this, uh, justice? Well, I mean, yeah, sort of. It's definitely involved... I'm talking about the fey courts, you rube. Do you know nothing? This is new to me. Uh, look, in the Feywild, there are the courts. The spring, the winter, the summer, the fall. We're talking about the kings and queens and lords of the Fey. Like a ball of sorts, yes? Oh, the balls are wonderful. You mean to say that in the Feywild, there is a, a, a court of nobility and aristocracy, just like there is in... In the material plane. <laughs> no, you fool! Not in the slightest! Uh, there are courts of nobility, yes, but not like in the mortal realm. The politics here are far more intricate. You speak of these courts as you speak of seasons. I do, for they are based off of the seasons of the mortal realm. They directly influence them. You see, the season of the mortal realm determines which of the courts gets precedent over the Feywild. Though, it, it might be the other way around. The court with precedence might influence the season in the mortal realm? Oh, I don't know. Your realm is strange and unsightly. Strange indeed. You have no room to speak, Fanny. The pixie glances to his sides. Well, I'd say I have lots of room. He flies up a little higher in the air, a mischievous grin plastered between his rosy cheeks. I mean, your land being just as strange as ours. Oh, to be fair, this is not my land. I have been... Uh, I am merely in the Everwood on an extended vacation. I come from the courts. How long have you been in these woods? Oh, I've been in the Everwood for something around, I'd say, five of your mortal years? So you do know your way around? Oh, quite well. I know the Everwood like the back of my hand. What would you ask the rest of my companions? Ah, you. He points to Varys. You made something that smelled very delightful last night. You will cook all of our meals. That's a tall price. Where will I get my ingredients? Well, you did just take quite a large poultry specimen. Aside from that, there are many fine items for a good hunter, which I assume several of you are. Well, I've noticed some of your skill with a bow. There are lots of fruits here. I could certainly point out a few that should be safe to eat for you mortals. And what would you require of me, fairy? Well, it's very simple. You have to stay as far away from me as mortally possible. No offense to you, you strange person, but you stink of iron, and it's positively offensive. As my companions converse with this pixie, 
I slowly move around to a better vantage point. If this pixie means us any harm, I will kill it. In my experience in the Shadowfell, fairies and pixies are not to be trusted. So, do you have a name? I do. My name is Treoblade. He nods her head and takes a step towards Treoblade. You say you've been in this place for five years now. Five human years. Five mortal years. How do you know that? Oh, well, there's these <laughs> little settlements and villages near the mountains, and, uh, well, humans make the best bread, partnered with a little bit of honey. Oh, so good. I've maybe been known to filch a few pieces every once in a while. So you tell time by the mortals? No, but I knew if I told you how long I've been in the Everwood by my reckoning, you wouldn't understand what I meant. Well, what is it by your reckoning? I've been here for about 16 seasons by my reckoning, but things don't exactly transpire here the same way they do in your realm. Yes, that is what I meant. How would you tell? Well, I don't generally go very far north, so time is relatively stable for me here. You see, to the north is... Well, suffice to say, I don't go to the north that much. Does time pass more quickly or more slowly to the north? That depends on the position of the sun, doesn't it? If the sun is setting, it passes more slowly. And if the sun is rising, it passes more quickly? I suppose not, but it does make for a longer day, which makes it feel slower. You speak nonsense, fairy. Yeah, every day is longest at its beginning. Uh, you, you don't understand, and I don't expect you to. You just don't live here. Trio Blade looks to the left, then rotates in the air, continuing to scan his surroundings. Wasn't there... wasn't there more of you? On that note, what do you expect of the others? Well, for the most part, from you... Are you even capable of moving very fast? You look... old. I may be old and frail, but I hold my own. Well, if you insist. Though I would request that you travel with the Ironmonger. You don't stink of iron, but... There's something about you. I don't know you... Treoblade frowns and wrinkles his nose. You smell of hatred. Hatred? I notice he's having a physical reaction. I think about the things on my person that may be causing it. You obviously mistrust my companions. No, I just don't like traveling with people that stink. But why should we trust you? Well, you're lost. You don't seem to know which way to go, and I'm offering help. Well, there was an old human proverb that I once heard when I was filching this particularly nice rye bread. Uh, <clears throat> if you were stranded in the desert and someone offered you water, you'd ask what they wanted in return. I think they were trying to insult them for that, by the way. Well, I don't know how it is in the Fey Realm, but in the mortal realm, trust is earned. You were here last night around the campfire. I was. Were you... One of the ones who was playing tricks on me during my watch? No. How can we be sure? Varys senses Sendra out of the corner of his eye, slowly circling to a hidden position. Not breaking direct eye contact with Treoblade, he senses that he's telling the truth. 
Pebax watches Triobladez' subtle reactions to his question and is very certain he isn't deceiving them. At least, not in this matter. I make a sudden realization. The creature, Triobladez, he smells my arrow of face laying. Within Gi's pack is a magical arrow she borrowed from her research campus before journeying into the Fey Realm. This arrow is imbued with magical properties which make it lethal to all but the strongest Fey creatures. The fact that Triobladez can smell it or sense it somehow piques her scholarly interest. She makes a mental note to share this knowledge if she returns to the mortal realm. Something in the Fey's voice makes me believe their words. If it wasn't you, can you tell me was the vision of the white-haired lady a trick or was it real? All right, look. I couldn't help but notice that you uh <clears throat> partook of some strange substances and not everything in the Everwood is safe to eat for mortals. Uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I'm not sure that you saw what you think you saw. No, the woman is real. I've seen her before, too. Oh, as the one who was handing out such illicit substances, I believe everything you had to say about the subject. So, we are to trust you, but you're not to trust us? <sighs> Look, I will show you where you want to go. In exchange, I want something from each of you. I want her music, his cooking, your distance, and I know there was another one. I knew exactly what I wanted to ask her. Where's the pale one? I'm not sure. What did you hope to ask of her? Well, I wanted her stone. Her stone? Yes, I could smell it. She's from the other place. That place, it's the exact opposite of here. I've never been myself, but it has certain qualities. When Tria Blade asks about Cinder's location, I realize I haven't seen her as this conversation has been going on. I peer around the clearing in the trees, looking for her silhouette. Looking into the distance, he sees Sendra behind Triobladez, crouched behind a mess of splintered tree branches. Triobladez seems oblivious. I stay engaged in the conversation with the fairy, but I make sure to locate Sendra. She's skulking in the trees, probably trying to get a better vantage point. Anyways, that stone that she has has some interesting properties. I will be the talk of the course if I bring it back to them. I don't believe the Shadow Elf has any stone on her. I've seen her, frankly, without much on, and, and I didn't notice anything in her possession. What stone do you believe she has? It's said that anyone who comes from that realm brings a piece of it with them. Rumors, fairy, rumors. Triobladez looks confused, then discouraged at Sybil's comment. You can't believe everything you hear. Uh, I shall have to come up with another favor from her. But there is one more thing I will need from all of you. All of you, if I am to lead you through the Everwood. Please, name it. You will have to obey me. And what would that entail, sweet fairy? You will have to go where I say, follow me where I lead, and when I say camp, we camp. The words that the creature uses, obey me, they unsettle me. I try to gauge what he's thinking. In that moment, something clicks in Guy's mind. The demand wasn't made out of concern for safety. The way he puffed out his chest while looking down upon them 
leads her to believe this is an ego trip. A small, frail creature ordering around beings many times its size and strength would be quite the story for him to tell at these fey courts he seems so interested in. Once we've made this agreement with you, what is the consequence if you feel we haven't obeyed you? I will leave you immediately. That seems fair. All right. All right. I'm in agreement if everyone else is. Um... Treablade, perhaps you would excuse us to have a private conversation? <sighs> if I must, I must. Fly over there somewhere. Treoblade frowns at Peabax, then hovers backwards, away from the group. Before the pixie has a chance to fly off, I step out of the shadows and walk from behind it to meet with my fellow travelers. Syndra startles Treoblade, <laughs> walking forward but making hard eye contact. She wants him to know that she doesn't trust him, doesn't like him, and is eager for him to make a mistake, any mistake, that would justify killing him. He speeds away to a far-off tree, landing on a high branch. Syndra joins the group, but keeps looking at Treoblade. He is shortly joined by a few other fairies, spinning and dancing around him, casting the same faint light from their wings. I kneel down to converse with my compatriots. I notice as Treoblade leaves us, he seems to fade into the shadows and luminesce. He joins four others that appear that way. I tell the others, there may be five of them total. There's no telling how many there could be surrounding us in these woods. It may also just be a trick. They are not to be trusted at all. I've heard tales that they should not be trusted, but... This one seems trustworthy enough. And also, what other options do we have? I mean, we just got done talking about how we're lost and we need to go somewhere. We don't have many other options. And we do have each other. Oh, we can watch over each other. Yes. We've proven to be capable and a good team, I think. Yes, we are capable. But so are they. These creatures can cause various illusions. They can cause mass confusion. They could make you think you're crossing a bridge and you're really walking off of a cliff. Should we place our trust in creatures with that propensity? I think it's possible to use someone as an ally without... Um, without understanding that there are potential dangers. And I think that with or without our agreeing to go with them, we will have tricks played on us. Yes, but better to face the trick knowing it's a trick rather than placing your trust in the trickster. So we're in agreement. I'm not sure what you mean. We have to follow this fairy, but we don't have to trust them entirely. I'm fairly certain that following the fairy means death. You don't know me that well, but many people have tried to bring death to me, and they failed. But it does only take one success. I'm willing to take that risk. I'm not! Well, you're welcome to stay in your campsite, I suppose. I would hate to leave you behind, of course, and I would prefer you'd come with. I reach into a, my belt pouch and retrieve a copper coin. It seems to me 
that the best way to choose is with chance. Facing this Feywood alone seems... Uh, well, it may be comparable at least to, if not worse than death, I... I decide to go along with the coin toss. I feel leery of this thing as well. But you'd rather flip a coin instead of having us all have consensus? You'd rather leave it to chance in this weird place? I just know that one way or the other, this forest will find ways to trick us, mislead us, misguide us, trap us, and try to kill us. Yes, I think we've learned that already in our short time. So if it comes down to trusting this fairy or not, I know no other way to choose. That's fair. Okay, fine. Flip the coin, Barris. Flip it. If you must. Heads or tails. I remain conflicted. I rub the coin between my four fingers and my thumb, feeling the relief of the face embossed on the coin. I look to the group. So... Heads, we trust the fairy. Tails, we find our own path. Heads, we follow the fairy. We don't trust the fairy. But yes. All right. I I agree. Do the deed. As the coin rings through the air, I snatch it. It looks like we're finding our own path. So be it. This makes me feel more comfortable. We just killed a rock half the size of the mountain. I think we can handle the wood on our own. Everybody hesitantly nods in agreement. Varys looks to Treoblade in the distance and motions for him to return. Treoblade sees him, then looks at his fellow fairies and gesticulates towards the group. After a good laugh, the fairies disperse and he returns to await an answer. Treoblade... You've been very kind to offer your services, but... I know, it appears yes, I know. It is very kind of me, yes. Chance uh, has another plan for us, so if you don't mind, uh, I will thank you for your generosity, and we will go on our own way. Treoblade looks dumbfounded and shakes his head in disbelief. Uh, 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 are you serious? Inside I feel conflicted, but I know that I must support my team. So I respond, yes, I'm, I'm quite sure. Thank you again. Distance you wanted, distance you've got. I, I, fine, go out, go on your own, die in the woods. What do I care? You'll never find what you're looking for alone. You need someone that knows the woods. You need someone that understands the changeable nature of the Fey Realm. We have one another, and that is enough. Good day. And what do you know of what we're looking for? I know what exists here. Why else would you be here? What do you know of our quest? Well, nothing as of yet. I only know you needed a guide. At that moment, Sandra detects a subtle shift in her mind. She senses the absence of another presence within her thoughts. An absence implies that there had been a foreign presence in her mind for some time, operating somewhere underneath her conscious awareness. Her face darkens and her lips slowly curl back, revealing tightly clenched teeth. You... You came to the Fey Realm chasing stories? <laughs> there is no fruit of life! 
It won't grant you immortality. Certainly not to a mere mortal. <laughs> Go on, dying here, searching for your fabled fruits. <laughs> a crossbow bolt nearly rips Trio Blade in half as it bursts through his chest, then pins him to a nearby tree. His lifeless body slumps as thimblefuls of blue blood drip from his destroyed chest cavity and wings. The Everwood immediately goes silent. I look around to see where the boat came from. Sybil's mouth is agape and her eyes wide, a horrified look on her face. I turn to Syndra, seeing the empty crossbow in her hands. Was that absolutely necessary. The little insect was reading our thoughts, burrowing into our minds, looking for answers to our questions to trick us. I start walking over to pluck my bolt out of the fairy's body. I feel uneasy in the suddenly silent forest. Sandra, we don't know if it had any compatriots. It could have an army waiting out in the darkness. Oh, yes. Something's coming. Yes, and as a general rule, I don't take the life of living creatures. Varys looks at Sybil, looks to the carcass of the dead rock, then back to Sybil, raising an eyebrow. Unless, of course, it's in self-defense. Staring at the lifeless body of this fairy, I sigh. (sighs) Well, which way do we go? Sendra removes her bolt from the tree. Trio Blade's tiny body slides off and falls to the ground. I step on it. I look away, thoroughly disgusted. Varys is still, but glares at Sendra. Seeing Sendra crush the corpse into the ground, I wonder to myself how many people were in that church when she burned it down. I say whichever direction we go, we make sure we're prepared. I definitely felt a change in the forest when, well, when you did what you did, Syndra. We have certainly shifted the balance in the forest. It will be watching us even more closely now than before. I notice the trees look a bit lusher in a certain direction. I, I think it's northeast. I raise my hand and point that way. I think we should go this way. I look around us, judging the wood and which way to go. The northeast does look more lush, and I had entered the Everwood from the west side, so east seems likely the right way to go. Yes, Uh, sure, let's go that way. I can hardly tell what direction we've come from, even this far into the woods. If you both believe that's the best direction, I'll follow. I agree with my companions in our direction, and I simply nod in agreement. I do keep an ear out for the sound of water. After collecting their belongings from Guy's destroyed camp, they begin to walk towards the Verdant Woods. I follow Sybil, wary and keeping an eye out for the creatures that may come. Fully aware that we might be being followed by fake creatures that might be upset with us. I have my instrument ready. They, they seem to like music. And if I can pacify them, I'll be ready. As we begin journeying to the northeast, I ready my longbow, knocking an arrow in preparation for any dangers that might be ahead. 
It feels wrong to mistrust a forest, but I can't bring myself to trust this one. I nod in agreement with the direction that everybody has chosen. I walk behind them, keeping watch. Sybil takes the lead, followed by Guy, Peabax, and Varys. Sendra takes the rear guard, constantly glancing behind her back. They cautiously move forward, carefully stepping over ferns and felled logs, assessing every noise, every movement, and every breeze as a potential threat. Their short time in the Feywilds has proven that directions simply aren't the same here than in the mortal realm. Everybody tacitly understands that nobody really knows what they are doing. They only know that moving is better than staying put. The trees ominously tower over them as they journey deeper into the mysterious Feywild. Four hours later, the sun has risen directly overhead. Sendra, Peabax, Guy, Varys, and Sybil continue to trek northeastward towards an unknown destination. The forest has only recently begun audibly humming with life again, having been silenced for hours upon Triobladen's death. The flora begins to change around them, and they start to encounter trees with bulbous knots. As they travel deeper, the knots become more clustered and complex, until finally, unsettlingly, the knots form into faces. Soon, each tree possesses a single face, each one unique. I notice the knotted faces on the trees. I can't help but feel a bit creeped out. It's like they're watching us. What do you make of all these faces around us? I don't like them. They don't seem to be watching us or moving. Do you all see that just up ahead? They enter into a small clearing. A perfect circle of trees surround them, each with a face looking to the center. In the middle of the circle is a large sky blue rock. The rock is richly colored, and it's difficult to tell if it's glowing internally or just illuminated by the shaft of sunlight pouring upon it from the heavens above. I notice the faces in the trees that the others are speaking of, but the stone, something about it, calls to me. I approach it warily, reaching out but not touching, looking for inscriptions of any kind. The rock is chest-high to Varys. At the top is a relatively flat, weather-worn surface. Varys leans in close and investigates the rock, starting from its base. The top is flat. Perhaps something is supposed to be placed atop it. This ring could be for some kind of ritual, I suppose. But the stone has been here for some time, judging by the weathered surface. There's no inscriptions that I can see. It's hard to guess what its purpose is. I think this place might be a place of communion for the creatures. A face circle. Face circles are places of general power or communion, where fairies and other fey folk gather to visit each other and share stories. They often serve as something like a town center, though there is nothing around to indicate that this area was ever inhabited by sentient life. I believe we should probably keep going. We shouldn't linger. Well, if this is a fey circle, could this stone here be an altar of some kind? I'm not certain exactly how these work. I shrug. I look around at the others, equally dumbfounded. Looking at the stone, 
I can only imagine what strange rituals it's seen in this circle. I reach towards it. Perhaps in touching it, I might get some glimpse of the things it's seen. No, don't touch it! As my fingers contact the weather-worn surface in anticipation of feeling something, anything, there's nothing. I draw my hand away. The faces in the tree continue their silent vigil. One has flower petals growing in a band around the lower half of its face, forming something reminiscent of a beard. Another has moss growing on the sides of its face, resembling sideburns. Yet another has small branches growing and twisting around it, complementing its facial features. Upon inspecting a nearby tree in the circle, Sybil surmises that these faces weren't created by an external magical force. Rather, they appear to have grown from a magical force within. As I look up in disappointment, I notice the faces on the trees. I mean, I truly notice them. Their features, their eyes, the way they look directly towards this stone. All of them with their their different expressions, their different beards grown out of moss, all directed at this stone. I wonder, I wish I could figure out what its purpose was. I look to my companions. These faces, they all look here. Should we make an offering? And what sort of offering do you suggest? Um, I mean, it should be something meaningful, I imagine. From what I know of the Fae, they do like honey, sugar, wine, any of that. We could give that as an offering. I'm afraid the best I could do is a candle. Hearing Syndra list off ingredients, I recall... Tria Blade's interest in my cooking. Perhaps the Feywild more broadly would appreciate those flavors. I reach into my pouch. I really don't think you should mess with the rock. I agree. Do you see those creepy faces? I'm watching the faces while he's playing with the rock. Varys, what are you doing? I reach into Heward's handy spice pouch saying a few words. Parsley. And I pull a pinch, sprinkle it on the altar. Rosemary. And another pinch, sprinkled on the altar. Sage. Reaching in again. A fresh pinch on the altar. Cinnamon. Another pinch, sprinkled on the altar. Sea salt. Reaching in for a final pinch, sprinkle it atop the altar. With these offerings... We ask your blessing to proceed. I take a deep inhale of the combined spices on the altar. I feel I've done the right thing. Let us proceed. I agree. Let's get out of here. I look around one more time, looking for any differences in the faces or the rock itself after Varys' act. None of the faces have moved or changed in any way. The rock continues to bathe in sunlight, unchanging. I feel we have the blessing of the woods, my friends. Syndra notices the warm breeze has no effect on Peabax's cloak, which billows seemingly independently of the wind. On the opposite side of the blue rock, Varys detects movement out of the corner of his eye. I see a small, antlered creature 
retreat back into the knots that makes the eyes on one of the trees. Perhaps that tree is hollow. I move towards it to investigate. Having seen the positive reception from Varys's offering, I look at him inquisitively and just watch what he is doing. Varys looks into the eye hole in the tree's face. It's dark inside, but enough reflected sunlight enters, allowing him to see that the hole goes deeper into the tree and down towards the trunk. He can also faintly see the reflection of the small creature's eye looking back up at him from the darkness. Seeing the glimmer of an eye in the hollow, I whisper, Did you enjoy the combination of flavors? We are lost in these woods. Would you be able to help us? The animal just blinks. Then, in a flash, it moves, climbing further down into the tree, scraping its tiny claws against the wood as it climbs down. Becaris, look at the bottom of the tree. Do you notice anything? I kneel to inspect the base of the tree. The little creature scurries out from under an elevated root and darts into the nearby brush. Has anyone any light? This tree is hollow. I can't tell if it's just the tree or if the passage continues under it. But some creature, I believe, has taken up home in it. We should be wary. We could shine a light beneath it. See if we can see any further into it. Yeah, let's do it. Well, unfortunately, uh, I don't have a light. Kneeling next to the tree, I put my ear to the ground and start knocking on the soft ground in between the roots, listening for hollow points. Varys finds no indication that the ground beneath the tree is hollow. I don't believe the passage extends into the ground, but the tree certainly is hollow. Well, what are you waiting for? Reach in. I grab my quarterstaff and poke the end into the entrance of the hollow in the tree. The staff enters the eye of the face. Varys tries to angle the staff downward to see if it will go deeper, but the slope is too steep. He removes his staff. I walk toward Varys and offer my tinderbox. This may give you glimpses of what's in there. I look at the tinderbox and shake my head. No, no. I would be too concerned I would set this hollow tree alight. I wouldn't want to desecrate this ring. I quickly take the tinderbox back and put it away. Oh, yes, of course. I. Oh, wait. I have a mirror. We can direct light into the hole at the bottom of the tree. I circle to the backside of the tree and lay down on the soft moss at its base. Hand me your mirror. I'll shine the light up and someone else can look down through the top. I had Varys the mirror. We should also look down, see if there's a tunnel. I look into the eye hole of the knot of the tree. What do you see? There's something still in there. It's closer to where I am. Move the light around and I'll see what I can see. I reposition the mirror to try and shine the light. As I watch my new friends struggle to get a sense of what's inside of this tree, I get frustrated. I'm not sure how this is serving us when we're trying to find the fruit of life. So in order to speed things up, I walk up and reach my hand into the trunk. That's mighty brave. I feel several things inside of there. They feel maybe like nuts? I pull one out to examine. Sybil produces a small, uncut, brilliant red gemstone. 
Wow! Yes, it's a beautiful stone. It doesn't appear to be magical. I examine it closely. This might be the creature's nest. We shouldn't disturb it too much. This coming from a man who shoved a stick inside of the trunk? I do think we should return what we take out of the tree. Yes, I agree. I don't know what this is, but this place, it doesn't seem very forgiving, and I think we should move on. Let's just look beneath it. I return the stone to the trunk. Sybil, did you happen to find any diamonds in the center of that tree by chance? Hmm. I reach my hand back in and pull out another. No diamonds, eh? Uh, All right. I stand up from the base of the tree. No, Peabax, there are no diamonds here. Only the treasures of a creature trying to build a home. We should leave them. Oh, just give me my mirror. I lay down at the bottom of the tree. Here, take this mirror and shine it from the top. I want to look into the bottom. As my companions continue to fool around with this tree, I reach into my bag and pull out some of my dry rations. Maybe I can tempt the creature out of its hiding place. Sendra squats and holds the rations in front of her. Seeing that the bush in front of me doesn't move, I just toss it, toss the dry rations over to it. Right, you want me to shine light from the top now? Might as well come at it from both ends if you can. Starting to think that perhaps the search is a little misguided. I shake my head and position the mirror to shine a little light down the knot hole. Judging by the light, it appears that the tree has a narrow tunnel inside running from the eye of the face to the roots. Whether it is natural or carved out by animals is unknown. My curiosity sated. I see that it is just a burrow inside of the tree. There's nothing down there. I fear we may have wasted our time investigating this tree. I suppose so. I just stare blankly at my compatriots. As I take a very long swig from my wineskin. I put my mirror away and head back toward where we were going. As various pokes and broads around the tree. I walk around the grove in the circle, looking for anything that could be salvaged. Peabox comes across an area that has three yellow flowers with five long, thin petals with green striations through them. They are growing out of a central shrub, which has bunches of what look like small blackberries. I look over a bush. I notice that its flowers and blossoms and berries have been picked and nibbled at by other fauna in the area. I take a few of these and pocket them for later just in case. As he pulls the first berry, viscous sap leaks out of the bottom of the stem and onto his gauntlet. There don't appear to be any adverse effects. After pulling out the two bits from his trunk, I decide to keep the gem but return the nut. Seeing Sybil pocket the gemstone from the creature's nest, I can only think it's a desecration. Sybil, surely that stone can't be worth ruining that creature's home for. 
You mean ruining it any worse than shoving a quarterstaff inside of it? I bow my head in shame. I was thoughtless. I think what's done is done. It's a pretty thing, and I don't think it'll miss it. I do think perhaps we should do the least harm to the thing's nest and incur the least wrath as possible from these creatures. It might be wise to put it back. I untie the money pouch at my belt, open it, start fingering the coins. I would gladly reimburse you for the value of that gem if you would return it to the nest. Well, it's not about the value. It's about it being quite beautiful. So unless you have some kind of beautiful stone to replace it with, it's mine, I'm afraid. Saddened by Sybil's reply, I pull five gold coins from my pouch and drop them into the nest, hoping it's some small repayment. Taking one final look at the strange circle of trees and altar-like stone, the party decides it's time to move on. Nothing of note crosses their path as they hike deeper into the Feywilds. It is now early evening, painting everything with an orange hue, yet the sun refuses to set. Dusk has lingered much longer than normal. After many hours of trekking through the woods, I feel exhausted as if an entire day has gone past, except the sun would have me believe it's only late afternoon, perhaps early evening. I look to my companions. I don't know about the rest of you, but I feel as though I've certainly traveled a full day, no matter what the sun is telling us. Should we make camp soon? Sounds like a good idea. I agree. Yes, we should make camp with haste. I look around the area we're in now. I notice the canopy would offer substantial protection from any rain that might come during the night. Here seems as good a place as any. At least we won't be rained on under this foliage. And it looks flat enough, so in case it does rain, it won't come into the campsite. Varys begins to build a fire, intent on roasting a cut of the rock's wings. The area has a more uneven, bumpy terrain, with bulbous mounds of dirt partially surrounding them. They establish camp at the bottom of a gently sloping mound of soil with trees growing upon it, possibly hiding a strange, complex root system. I'll spread out into the environs looking for tinder for the fire. Varys, do you want first or second watch? Well, I would say we could leave it to a coin toss, but just because we're the elves, does it mean we have to take every watch? We don't have to, but it is more advantageous for the finger wigglers to get more sleep. What a waste of eight hours. I'll take second watch. Okay. As the sun sets and the fire glows, I look around at everyone. Tell me about yourselves. I point at Peabax. You. You first. I've, uh, I've been a battalion leader in my time. I've led... Soldiers since battle, numerous times over. Uh, I've seen blood spilled in the name of many different causes and needs of my land. I find myself given this letter and, uh, well, you know the rest. I find myself here with the rest of you. All right. Well, so 
You've all heard of him, too. You said he's renowned. Um, and yes, you've fought a lot of men, and yes, but who are you? Hearing the question, who are you, echoing in my mind, I realize I also have but a shallow understanding of these people I travel with. You're a soldier? A captain? Uh, yes. Battalion leader. That was my former charge. Correct. All right, and, uh, who who do you fight for? Uh, I just fight for the weak and, uh, I fight against the injustices anywhere they may appear. The world needs to tilt towards good. There is much evil in it that needs to be vanquished. If I could bring any justice to this globe, so be it. Ah, yes. And, uh, where does your power come from? You can see the flaming sword symbol here on my chest. You see this holy symbol of Tempest, the flaming sword? That is my cause and my need. I follow Tempest's word indeed. Tempest. I've never heard of this god. I believe they're the god of the sea. Sailors, I don't know. I'm an elf of the woods. I've never seen the sea. He's a god of war. Not an evil god. I know the songs. I've heard the tales. A god of, of, of war. Does that mean that you, that is your only allegiance, Pebax, is to Tempest? Yes, he is my guiding force. He leads, I follow. He is just and right. He tips the scales. I see. May I ask why you wear that helmet all the time? You could take it off and enjoy your food with us around the fire. Uh, yes. You're correct, Sybil. Uh, I very well could remove my helmet in front of everyone, but... My battles and my war stance up till now requires me to be hidden from everything. I can't compromise my identity. If too many people knew, that could compromise everything I've ever done. And Tempest would be upset indeed. Yes, this is fair. Um, however... I think it's important for me to mention that we've been fighting side by side for quite some time now, several weeks, and, you know, I feel a bit strange not knowing you. Point well taken. Um, hmm. Sybil, uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, walk with me for a moment. Of course. As inconspicuously as possible, I stand up and walk away from the fire with Pebax. It seems like this is going to be a serious conversation, and I'm concerned about it. We walk into the darkness, and as the firelight recedes and the darkness swallows us, I turn to Sybil and say, You know, I hide my face only for my own protection. I, I fear that... If I were to reveal myself, uh, I wouldn't be taken seriously on the battlefield. 
I've been persecuted for what I am, what I look like in the past. So, despite all my intentions, despite the guidance of Tempest, uh, people's hatred and prejudice many times come into play. That must be awful for you. Yes. So, you understand my caution, myself being guarded, yes? I mean, of course. You need to do whatever you need to do to make yourself feel safe and respected as a, a battlefield leader. You are right. Um, that said, I, I do still hope you'll feel comfortable allowing me in. I look back at the campfire in the distance, back at the rest of the team. You know, I don't do this for just anyone. And I turn to Sybil. I remove my helmet then show her my real identity. I'm momentarily taken aback. But then I recall, he's not the first I've seen. Pebax, why do you think you have to hide this? Decent folk come in all shapes and sizes. Undecent folk, they know how to make it difficult for individuals like myself. I'm not as beautiful as you. People's eyes do have their judgments, you know. Fair enough. It's true. Well, if I can ever do anything to assist you with changing your appearance as an illusion or something, please let me know. Oh, certainly. I will take you up on that, Sybil. I appreciate it. And, naturally, if you could keep this between us for now, uh, thank you, my dear. Shall we return to the rest of them? Your secret is very safe with me. You might want to put that back on. <laughs> oh, certainly. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me. I reseat my helmet over my face and begin to return to the fire to our companions. He is the first to notice Sybil and Peabax's return as Varys is busy removing cooking supplies from his pack. Welcome back to both of you. I'm glad you're getting to know each other better. Now, man, let's let's all get to know each other better. I point to Varys. How about you? And Eslin, ready to hear a story. As I grind a special blend of herbs and seasonings in my mortar and pestle, I reach back into my memories for a story I feel relevant. When I was young, my village was hit by some unnatural blight as well. The blight started affecting the minds of the elders first, and as I watched my own grandmother slowly fade, I sat with her and listened to her stories to try and save as much of the history as I could. We asked the Order of the Grove to come and help solve this blight before it took them all but they could not find the solution. After the elders, it started affecting the adults. Luckily, I suppose, for us kids, for whatever reason, it didn't affect us. All the loss, I suppose, is outweighed by the, the kindness the Order of the Grove showed me and some of my fellow children. They took us in, 
raised us as their own, showed us the importance of the natural order. And that's why I took this particular job. Maybe I could help solve a blight that others before me uh, couldn't. And that's why I keep my mushroom stew recipe so close, to remind me of my nan and all the stories that are lost. How terrible it is. How terrible a loss is, but the loss of an entire generation's worth of knowledge. I, I hope that that regretful beginning brings you to, well, a more hopeful ending. I appreciate your kindness. Yes, it's, it sounds like your family was quite lovely, and I'm sorry for your loss. Were it not for those losses, we would not be together here. I wish I felt such sadness for the loss of my family, but I was raised by my father. Quite a horrible man, really. He was always forcing me to swindle people. He gambled a lot, you see, and, and always took me with him, and so I suppose I have him to thank for many of my talents, but I did not enjoy the process. I never felt right about it. It's very difficult, dear, being, well, being used by someone who's supposed to protect you, provide for you. I'm sorry you had to go through that. Oh, it's quite all right. He's, he's paying for his bad deeds. He was captured some time ago by guards, and I believe he's sitting in jail now, probably for the rest of his life. I don't often think about him. Oh, well, it seems... Very difficult. All I can do is live my life in a better way, and I think I'm doing that. I think I help people in need, and and that feels good. Oh, good. Good, then. Good. All right, well, how about you, Syndra? Would you be willing to tell us more about yourself? From a very young age, I was pretty good with a blade. I decided to leave the Shadowfell for the experience. This place is, well, this place in particular, is vastly different. And collecting experiences is kind of what my people do. We go out, we experience the world as full as we can, fight, love, drink, make as much merry as possible, and whenever we finally die, we return to the Raven Queen. She collects memories, experiences, so our people being tied to the Shadowfell bring those back for her. So, once you die, the Raven Queen will know the taste of my Nan's stew? If she sees fit to collect that memory, I suppose so. I'll leave you the recipe. What does she do with these memories? She's a collector. She takes them and keeps them, like trinkets, on a shelf. Does she not leave the Shadowfell herself to collect memories? From what I know of her, she's tied to the Shadowfell. She doesn't project her essence anywhere else, like onto the Material Plane or even the Feywild. It's an honor for my people to go out and gather experiences for her. Oh, how, how sad for her. 
What a yoke of responsibility that is. I, I hope she can find fulfillment from her people and your memories. As do I. This rock wing is delicious. Thank you. Oh yes, after so long of taking care of myself, it's so nice to have these different flavors. Thank you. In fact, I'm, I'm quite close to happy after all I've been through. I, I'd like to tell you all my name. I look around the group expectantly. Names are important to gnomes, and they take great pleasure in their collection and use. In many gnomish cultures, a single person would be given names by each of their family members. However, many gnomes have learned to be conservative when naming themselves around others whose names tend to be more limited. I pause before taking another bite, and I lean towards Guy. Go on, then. Tell us. It is Griupalope Rigopuggle Durgturgperg. I'm afraid that name would be hard to fit into one of my songs. Would you be okay with me just calling you Guy? Well, yes. It's all right. I can see that might be difficult to fit into a song. I can barely fit it into my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your company this evening. I will uh, take my leave. Good night. Yes, I think the same. Some rest would do me good. Oh, well. Good night, everyone. And thank you, thank you, Varys, Syndra, for watching the camp. So, Varys, you want to take first or second watch this time? I'd say we should flip a coin, but I'll just take first. Acquiescing, Syndra takes to her bedroll, leaving Varys with the fire and a faint warm breeze. His shadow plays on the sheer side of a small tree-covered plateau behind him. For some time he sits, watching the woods, unaware of the intermittent pauses in the breeze, unaware of the fact that, while the tongues of flame bend with the wind, the leaves in the trees around him do not. Some time passes before he notices something strange about the wind, a strange secondary breeze blowing the opposite way towards the plateau behind him. Varys stands and turns to face the rise as another warm, gentle breeze washes over him, originating from the plateau once more, there and gone, there and gone again. As I stand here in these woods, alone, in the night, I take a calming breath. And as I exhale, I sense that something perhaps is breathing with me. Another inhale. But the breeze is towards me now. The air is breathing into me. No. I hold my breath and I feel the breeze drawn away again. These woods are breathing on their own, coming from that plateau ahead. Sensing the breath coming from the plateau, I cautiously approach. The plateau is not particularly wide. To his right, it starts as what seems like a bumpy mass of overgrown rock and topped with small shrubs. From there, it is a gentle rise to the center where larger trees have taken root above the cliff-like surface facing the camp. After about 15 feet, it once again slopes down gently to mesh once more with the ground around it. 
the source of the breath, for lack of better word, seems to be coming from the right slope of this plateau ahead of me. These woods are so strange. All I can think is perhaps the earth itself is breathing. And if I get too close, I might be drawn in. I approach the wall of the plateau and place my ear against the ground. With my ear on the ground, I hear a loud, distant thump, and I pause to listen, and then another thump, and another after a pause. This is too much for me alone. I will leave this for the morning, and I start to backpedal towards the camp, cautiously ensuring that I don't disturb a single leaf or branch. I don't want to wake the earth before sunrise. Varys settles back near the fire, acutely aware of every shifting breeze that rustles the flame. As my watch drags on, I peer out into the darkness, trying not to think too much about the breathing plateau behind me. Peering off into the woods, I catch a glimpse of white. Is that the long-haired woman? It's her. She's back. I knew it was not a figment of my imagination. I have to get closer. Varys leaves the camp, moving cautiously through the woods in the woman's direction, whether by some unknown magic or sheer happenstance, never appearing further away than when he first saw her. But neither does he seem to close the distance. As I creep carefully through the trees, being sure to avoid the underbrush, I I can't seem to gain any ground. She at first appeared to be still, but as I advance, she withdraws. I find a large tree, its bark green with moss, crouch behind it and peer around, hoping, hoping to be one step closer than I was before. I hear a snapping sound above me. A long, glowing, thorned vine swipes down toward him and attempts to wrap around his waist. Seeing the vine reaching for me, and I spring up, take three quick steps up the trunk of the trees. I do a backflip, clearing the vine and landing several feet from the trunk of the tree. The vine continues to writhe around blindly for a few more seconds, groping at the area where Varys once stood. Finally, it retreats back up the tree and wraps itself around the trunk. Now at a safe distance, I take a moment to peer up the tree, along the vine, and towards the top, at the top, the flower, the flower that I saw earlier, the one that was reaching for the last rays of the sun on our first night here. It's at this tree. I wonder if that's in some way connected to the Chikora fruit, remembering what drew me out away from the camp. I look around me again into the darkness for the lady with the white hair. But she's nowhere to be seen. I shouldn't be out this far from the fire. It's about time to change watch anyways. I turn and carefully make my way back to camp to awake Sendra. As I make it back to camp, I see Sendra has already awoken. Wanted to speak to her about the incident with the church. It has been weighing on me. I want to be able to 
trust my companions, but some of the tales that I've heard, a trustworthy person would not have done. But there's more pressing things. The forest, the earth itself is breathing. There's a woman lurking in the woods, possibly trying to lure us out one at a time. And then maybe I've found the flower for the Chikora fruit. <coughs> Syndra, there are many things to talk about right now. Are there? Are you all right? Please, come this way. I lead her towards the plateau. I follow Varys. I was focusing on my breathing early in the watch, and then I felt as though the woods around me were breathing too. So I followed it to this spot. I don't feel anything, Varys. No, no. Cinder, the breathing is from over on this side. I did not want to approach for fear that I might be drawn into the earth. But here, here, and I touch the side of the plateau. If you listen here, you'll hear its heartbeat. I'll get close and try to listen. It takes a moment, but Sendra also perceives a soft thumping sound. If it is a heartbeat, it's a very slow one. Do you hear it? I press my finger to the, my lips to tell Varys to be quiet. I motion for us to move back to camp slowly. I think we should try to be quiet and not move over there, but we can keep a, I'll keep a watch on that area. I agree that we should be cautious and quiet, but that's not all. Come this way, and I lead her into the woods towards the large green tree. Sandra hesitantly follows Varys through the woods, away from the camp. As they move away from the firelight, their dark vision reveals the shadowed areas of the forest, while moonlit areas become as bright and vibrant as if they had brought a torch. When we first arrived to these woods, on my flight in, I saw a single flower at the top of the canopy. It was drinking in the last rays of the sun, and... Against the canopy, the flower was enormous. Its size, I couldn't then begin to fathom. But I've found the tree in which it grows. Come, come. As we approach the large, moss-covered tree, I motion to Syndra to stop. The vines in this tree, they'll reach out to try and snag you. They have many thorns. Be careful. But look, above in the canopy... Above the surrounding trees, a purple flower bud rests atop the dangerous tree, faintly opened, as if slumbering in wait for the return of the sun. We should discuss this in the morning when the, with the others. We should, I agree. This and the heartbeat in the earth. And I think we should also discuss one more thing. Do you remember Guy's story of the white-haired woman? I saw her again. I think the woods are playing tricks on you. That... Maybe, but I would not have found this tree if I had not followed her. And what if that flower is the source of the Chikora fruit? And what if these woods are making you hallucinate a white woman into a trap? You said the vines attacked you? Let's go back to camp. You may think that I'm crazy, but I'm not the one who burnt down a church. Syndra and Varys lock eyes quietly assessing each other for a long moment. Their faces and body language convey nothing. I could tell you the many different versions of the tale that I've heard, 
most more horrific than not. I've heard many versions as well. But you have no idea what happened that night. You weren't there. I know one person who was. You. So what was the truth? Which tale am I to believe? The one where you trapped all of the village children inside? The one where it was just the elders? The one where it was the children, the elders, the livestock? The truth is, I was hired to kill the priest. No, he wasn't actually a priest. He was a charlatan. He took those people's money, all of it. Bought fancy clothes, bought dinners for himself, bought the finer things that he could acquire, while the rest of the people in that village starved. What I did was I crept into his bedroom while he was asleep in his fine linen and silk sheets, tied him to a chair inside his very beautifully decorated chapel and shoved all the gold coins I could find into his mouth and set the chapel on fire. No one else was there. It was just him, because I'm thorough at what I do. I made sure he was the only one that suffered. As I finish telling my tale to Varys, I'm fuming, I'm angry. I turn and leave without another word, back to take watch over the group. Well, that's certainly a version I hadn't heard before. I'll meditate on this. With a perplexed look on his face, Varys follows Sendra back to the campfire. It doesn't take long for Sendra to feel the breezes Varys described as breathing. She positions herself to watch the plateau, noticing for the first time that Peebax has nestled into the crook of two smaller rises near one of its ends, the end Varys said the breeze was coming from. As she spots him, the plateau itself undulates, seeming to expand upwards and out, causing some dirt to loosen and trickle down the steep cliff face. As the ground settles again, the trees resting above continue to sway for a few moments longer. Another breeze, stronger than the others, lifts the ends of her hair and nearly extinguishes the fire. A section of moss and earth crumbles off a knobby section of the right side of the mound, revealing a large amber eye staring directly at Syndra. I step back into the shadows. Syndra raises her hood and her cloak's magic takes hold, blending her body in with the shadows around her. To most eyes, she would appear as an extension of the darkness itself, the magic fooling the observing mind into rationalizing the excess darkness as a trick of the light. As she takes several steps away, her gaze fixed on the earth and rise. A gash in the earth just below the eye opens horizontally. More patches of grass and dirt fall from it, revealing two rows of sharp, yellowed teeth that gleam in the light of the campfire. The creature's lips work around the teeth as it tries to speak without opening its jaws. I can see you there in the dark. Living here has trained me to see that which does not want to be seen. Have no fear, young one. I seem to have overslept. I step back out into the moonlight. I'm sorry if I disturbed you at all. Oh no, not at all. I would rid myself of these 
tusky trees, but I don't want to disturb your companion. The creature's eye rolls towards Peabax, still nestled between two smaller mounds of earth. Syndra takes a moment to take in the shape of the plateau again, and realization floods into her. Peabax, it would seem, has chosen to sleep between two of the creature's claws. I appreciate your gentleness. It has been some time since I've found someone willing to talk without riddles or games. With a somewhat stifled yawn, the cliffside shifts once more, collapsing to reveal a tree root that has grown down the belly of this beast, as well as a patch of lustrous cerulean scales, suggesting that this small plateau could actually have been a buried, slumbering dragon. Can I ask, do you know how long you've been asleep? (sighs) It's hard to tell. The creature looks toward the trees that stand atop the plateau. The nearest one seems to have grown in such a way that it straddles what could be its buried neck. I would say a long time if the trees have moved to use me as a roost. The trees move. I would expect nothing less from here. (laughs) So, you do not appear to be of this realm. Why are you here? As I'm speaking with this dragon, I try to seem as composed as possible, but this is exhilarating. I've never been around in the presence of a dragon before. This will be an experience. A spark of a foreign emotion arises within Syndra, surging through her as she realizes her situation. To be completely honest with you, we are on a mission to retrieve the Chikora fruit, the fruit of life. There has been a blight on the material plane. It may be a cure. A blight? Surely you do not mean the blight. The Great Blight? Did the Blight come from here? Not here. Uh, Elsewhere. It is another aspect of the Feywild. If you head west of here, you should find the river that acts as the barrier. Across it, you will see the Great Blight. I do not recommend going into it, though. It is dangerous. Deadly. Do you know where we might find the Chikora fruit? It lies at the center of the Everwood. The Chikora tree is the anchor point that keeps the Everwood attached to the material plane. It keeps it constant. Only one fruit grows from that tree every 100 years. I certainly hope your quest is appropriately timed. (laughs) As do I. Um, if north is the river, then where is the center? Which direction would the center be? (laughs) It should logically be east. Uh, But do not expect logic to guide you here. We've noticed. A slight shudder passes down the right side of the plateau as the creature attempts to stretch a portion of itself that is still buried. One of the claws beside the still sleeping Peabax lifts slightly, causing a solid piece of compressed earth to break over Peabax's helmet. 
As Peabag stirs, the creature closes its eye and lips. What? 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 I'm sorry, that was my fault, Peabax. Go back to sleep. <clears throat> the dragon slowly opens its eye again and scans the camp. Did I disturb him? Yes, in fact, you did. Peabax shifts to a more comfortable position, but doesn't look up from his resting place. Perhaps thinking he is dreaming, Peabax continues to speak with the new presence without missing a beat. Oh, my apologies, young one. I wanted to let you and your friends sleep, but I've been stuck here for some time. Do you know for how long? I don't know for how long. Long enough to be overgrown. Our new friend here, Peabax, is, uh, was just telling me where we could find the Chikora fruit tree. Well, if you happen to find it, it's more of a loose direction. I can't tell you honestly how to find it because it isn't always in the right spot. The Everwood moves. These trees did not grow on me. They moved to cover me. The heart is always in the same place, but the heart is never where it should be. Does that make sense? No, not in the least. Welcome to the Feywild. The dragon shifts once more, tipping a tree where his shoulders should be. The tree shivers, dropping hard, acorn-like fruit. One falls on Sybil's head. Ouch! Is something happening? The dragon closes his eye and mouth again. I scramble to my feet. What's happening? It's all right, Sybil. Uh, we have a new friend. I rustle out of my bedroom, curious what has woken us up. I look around into the darkness, trying to locate the person Sendra's speaking about. New friend where? Oh, this is... I forgot to get your name. The dragon takes a deep breath. A large chunk of dirt falls off the side of the plateau, uncovering more gleaming scales. Oh, bother. The large amber eye opens once again. I open my eyes, awakened from my meditations, and I see the earth shift. Has Cinder woken it? I take in the creature before me, the glistening scales and a bright amber eye. This is a dragon, you guys! This is a dragon! And you are human, perhaps? I'm Sybil! Yes! Yes, it's so nice to meet you! I've never met a dragon before! Oh my god, this is gonna be crazy for my performances! It's so nice to meet you! How long have you been here? Why are you all dirty? Sybil, unable to hide her glee, slowly approaches the creature with a childlike look of wonder on her face. She passes Peabax, who is still bafflingly resting between large claws. Yeah, you have moss on your back. You have, you're like in the ground. It's like depressed where you're at. This, this is crazy. Oh, dragon! I'm sorry, did, did you say your name already? I, I, I'm sorry, I missed it. I'm Sybil. Did I already say that? It's just so nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well, excited one. The dragon shifts again, prompting a nearby tree to pick up its roots and wriggle off to the side before replanting itself. Sybil's jaw drops as a massive wing lifts up, showering the area with loose dirt. The wing isn't leathery or bat-like as one might expect. Rather, it more resembles a thick butterfly wing. I watch the dragon stretch his wing, and I am just in awe. What a thing of beauty. 
I'll be singing about this forever. Tremors move through the dirt remaining on the dragon's scales, shaking most of it loose. The trees that were on top of him begin to uproot and slowly wriggle away, parting from the shifting dragon in a comically awkward retreat. The wood! The wood is moving! Yes, and the everwood the trees do tend to migrate. That's how they wound up on top of me. Sorry, you asked for my name. I did. I did too. I do not know if you'll be able to pronounce it. Would you like to know anyway? Oh yes, of course! Peabax begrudgingly begins to stir from his position between the dragon's claws, seemingly not out of fear, but because the movements have made the sleeping position uncomfortable. Frustrated at his shifting bed beneath him, he finally stands and turns to face the dragon. His frustration instantly turns to wonderment as he takes in the size of the creature. Please allow us to address you as something other than dragon. Tersekarok. Tersekarok? Tersekarok. Could we just call you Turk? Would that be acceptable? I believe in your tongue, the elven tongue. It translates to beauteous one. Oh yes, yes, and you are! Yes, how appropriate. The dragon shifts again, causing a cascade of dirt to fall from him. I jump up and down, clapping my hands. May we call you Vanamar? In the elven tongue? That's just fine. Vanomar. Vanomar's tail lips, uprooting shrubs and grass. With a flick, the plant life is hurled into the darkness. His tail glistens in different hues of blue and purple. His other wings slowly unfurls and stretches, matching its pair. They tower above the party, before folding upon Vanomar's back. I stand back and I marvel at this creature moving in front of me. It's so beautiful. Wow. Vanamar, what are you, if you don't mind me asking, that is, what are you doing here? Sleeping. Yes, but is there a reason or were you just very, very, very tired? I was very, very tired. Vanamar tries to lift his neck but a tree that had straddled him refuses to uproot. Shifting his body once again for leverage, he powerfully lifts the tree from the ground. It falls to the side, crashing near the group. His neck and head raise up before shaking off the rest of the dirt and moss. More clearly visible now, he appears to be as tall as five men and twice as long, including the tail. I am sorry for waking you all. I had intended to let you sleep the night. Oh, it's it's perfectly fine. It's just so nice to meet you. I I can't wait to make up songs about this. People will never believe me. <sighs> There's much many people would not believe about the Feywild. You are indeed a majestic creature. Vanimar looks down to Peabax and smiles. Vanimar was telling us where we could find the Chikora fruit. Well, roughly, since the trees are predisposed to move around. 
but the Chikora tree itself will be the anchor. Where is it located? If it moves, can you fly us there? No, I can, but I will not. Oh. I am long overdue in the spring court. I don't know how long my nap has lasted. And after the court? What are you doing then? That will depend. I have a lot of catching up to do. Vanimar, not far from here, there is a tree with a huge purple flower atop it. Is that where we might find the Chikora fruit? No, and I would suggest that you stay as far from that plant as you can. It catches the sun's rays, but also uses unwary animals as food. It's carnivorous. It can be. Has it known to eat, uh, humans and humanoids? No, but that is only because few come to the Everwood. I become very uncomfortable. I think back to when we lost Sook all that time ago. Ferris, this plant that you saw close to us, is it a, a very wide squat plant with red petals? No, no. This one is a enormous purple flower at the top of the canopy. There's a quite a broad tree not far from here, bark covered in moss. The flower sits atop that above the canopy. I can say it would eat humanoids if it could have grabbed me. There are several plants that find alternative methods of food here in the Fey Wild. The general idea is stay away from anything larger than yourselves. I turn to Vanimar one more time and decide it's worth trying to persuade him again. Vanimar, are you sure there's nothing that we can do to persuade you to assist us? I turn on the charm and begin batting my eyelashes, not fully believing it'll do anything. I'm sorry, but I must return to the Fey Courts. However, there will be those guarding the entrances that may be able to offer you assistance. If you will come with me, I can bring you to them. Do I just follow you, or do I... what do we do? I believe flying would be out of the question. There is a long, spine-like fin protruding from the center of his back that would make for awkward seating. But I will walk with you if you intend to come with me. I would be happy to if if, if everyone else is, is on board and comfortable with that, of course. Are there any conditions? Conditions? Do not stray. Do not try to enter the Fey Court once we get there. You are not permitted. No. Oh, well. Okay. I'm willing to follow, as long as we're not required to serve as we would have been to the fairy. Fairy. Sybil's heart skips a beat, remembering Treoblade's tiny, bloody corpse. She sees the party's eyes shift to one another in uncertainty. She can't recall if dragons and fairies have any kind of special bond. If they do... 
They could have just made a grave mistake. She thinks quickly. Oh, uh, just a, um, I, that was, it was just a slight misunderstanding, of course. Not uncommon with their kind. Relieved, Sybil immediately tries to get as far away from that subject as possible. I said the same thing. Anyway, which way are we going? I, I think if we're all in agreement, we'd like to go with you. I look around at everyone, being sure that we're all in agreement. Your Majesty Dragon, I would be honored to accompany you to court. The dragon unearths his front claws and shakes the dirt from them. Then follow. Vanimar begins lumbering into the dark. Again, everyone quickly assesses everyone else's reaction. I quickly gather all of my things and rush to follow Vanimar. I hurriedly pack all of my cooking gear and gather my bedroll to follow the dragon. I grab my pack and follow along. Following suit, I pack my things hurriedly as well. The sky is still dark, but the multicolored bioluminescent glow of alien flora is bright enough to get a sense of one's surroundings. Otherworldly shimmers of light reflect off of Vanimar's scales as he expertly maneuvers his large mass through tightly packed trees. He speaks without looking back. So what business have you with the Chikora tree? We were sent to find it. There's a blight that's moving through the land. We think it might help. The great blight has existed for a long time. What would cause outsiders to come fix it now of all times? It threatens crops that feed most of the land. The blight has extended to the material plane. Yes. This could be a very big problem. What does it mean? I do not know. You say it has existed here for how long? Centuries. Centuries and centuries. A rather evil act corrupted the land. Specifically, the anchor point which holds that part of the Feywild to the material world. The corruption slowly decays the land around it. It is now the area of disease. Death. How do we find the anchor point? Simply go west of here. Cross the river. It acts as the border between realms. Over it, you will see the decay of death. Smell it. Feel it. And if you're so sensitive, perhaps even taste it. It is awful. I do not recommend that you go. It sounds absolutely revolting. A dangerous place. Yes. Danger exists everywhere in the Feywild for those who do not understand. We've discovered that, thank you. And what is the evil act that caused the blight? I do not know. Surely with your years of experience and great knowledge you have some idea. My dear, 
Vanimar stops a moment and lifts his wings, spreading them to the underside of treetops. I am a fey dragon. But I was not always so. True fey dragons rarely grow to my size. But when you spend enough time in the fey wild, it corrupts you, changes you, adapts you. He folds his wings back. So too did I. But I was not here when the blight's corruption occurred. Are you saying the corruption that created the blight is also what's behind the physics of this fey realm? The fey realm corrupts you in a way that makes you adapt to its unnatural laws. I was once tied to the material world, just spending enough time here. My body uh, adapted. It is a force of the magical aura of this place that caused the adaptation. But the corruption of the blight is different. Not so different from the material plane. We have to adapt there, too. The Feywild is changeable, mutable. I slept there at that place, and then over time, I was overcome. So, too, with emotion, feeling. The Feywild is an emotional mirror of the material plane. Something of strong evil occurs within it. That evil will intensify and corrupt the land. That happened in what is now the Great Blight. I could not say what it was, but I have heard it was truly terrible. From where did you learn stories about this event? The Fae Courts. All roads lead to the Fae Courts here, don't they? They know much. They have to. But no, not all roads. Your road leads you to the Chikora Tree. That is a different direction than where I will be going. But that is why fey circles exist. As if to punctuate his point, the forest opens up to a clearing. Within the clearing are a series of tall, unusual plants growing in the moonlight. The thick, veined stems grow up to the sky, ending with a seed pod the size of a curled-up adult human. Thin, silvery strands stand out from the seed pod like a stiff spider's silk. Vanimar reaches up a claw and touches the strands, which are surprisingly stiff considering how fine they look. He nods his head and looks back to the group. Do you wish to fly? I look up and around at the pods. (laughs) Where would these take us? Where I direct. It would be faster than walking through this undergrowth. For me, at least. What adventure! I sense hesitation from most of you. We can walk if you like. Let's do this. I believe the most expeditious and speedily way to get there would be the best, yes? Also sounds like great fun. 
Ferris approaches one of the tall plants and, before placing his hand on it, looks back to Venomar, who nods in approval. He touches the stalk as he looks up to a seed pot above. Am I to understand that we're going to fly using these seeds? Yes. And magic. <clears throat> well, the magic of the Fey Wild, I suppose. I will fly if I must. I've flown before. I look around and it it seems like everybody else is doing it, so... Oh, all right. Vanimar holds out an upturned claw before Sybil. She looks at the claw, then up to the dragon. He nods. Sybil's face lights up as she steps onto his palm, using a sharp claw for support. He then slowly raises her up and maneuvers her next to one of the seed pods. Grab hold of one. Hold tight. Oh, thank you, sir. I examine the seed pod and place my hands in a strategic manner. I need to have a good grip. It would be unfortunate to fall from such a great distance. I grab onto the large seed and pull myself over. I take the rope from my bag, wrap it around the stem, and make a harness to hold myself to it. Who is next? I'm still sensing hesitation. I don't want to be rude and push my way to the front of the line. Everybody deserves an equal opportunity. If, if we can ride together, I'm willing to ride with someone else. I would not recommend that. Noticing how tentative Guy is, uh, I'll invite her to ride the dragon's hand with me. If you care to ride with me, I can make sure you're secured to the seed so you're safe. Oh, thank you. That would be so welcome. Thank you. I, I turn and I check my things and then I I go ahead and begin to mount the cloth. Vanimar gently lifts Varys and Guy to a seed pod. I recommend only one per seed. Varys helps secure a dubious looking Guy onto a seed pod, fashioning an improvised rope harness for her to hold on to. After testing its integrity, Varys tries to reassure Guy with a few pats on the shoulder before hopping off of Vanimar's hand to a nearby seed pod. Vanimar turns to Peebax. I don't know if this will work for you. You're somewhat heavier than the rest. Well, certainly I could ride somewhere else on your person, yes. I had a similar thought. Vanimar holds out his claw again. Fine, let us ascend. Vanimar's claw slowly curves around Peebax, which is mildly terrifying. Fully within his grip, only Peebax's helmet protrudes from the top of the dragon's clenched fist. This isn't terrifying at all. I feel completely calm. Vanimar loosens his grip a little. If you would prefer to have your arms free. Ah! Don't drop me, please. Do you want your arms free or inside? I'll just close my eyes. You do whatever you like. The dragon closes his hand around Peebax once again. It's not fully constricting, but leaves very little wiggle room. Peebax resigns to the situation. Can we go now? Vanimar looks to the other adventurers. Are you all ready? <laughs> yes! Man. 
I, I wrap my legs tightly around the base of the seed pod, taking my meditation pose. I'm ready. We were born ready for this. Let us ascend! Vanimar lowers his head, inhales deeply, and lets out a powerful stream of breath. The seed pods detach from the stem, chaotically careening side to side while rapidly rising into the night sky. He then crouches before leaping into the air and spreading his wings, fanning them in such a way that pushes the pods further upward while also propelling himself to the heavens. Unmanned seed pods, disturbed by Vanimar's flight, also rise up into the air with the traveling adventurers, like strange airborne jellyfish. Just don't, don't open your eyes. Whatever you do, don't look down. Ah! Vanimar looks down to his claw. <laughs> Vanimar flaps his wings hard, getting ahead of the seed pods and seemingly having the time of his life. Once he gets a distance above everyone, he begins a glide back down. At the last moment, he alters his trajectory, pulling even with the horizon just above the heads of the travelers. His wings flex and curl into a vaguely seashell-like curve as he continues to glide forward. The seed pods catch in the slipstream vortex behind Vanimar and trail after him. Every once in a while, Vanimar will repeat this maneuver or fly beneath everyone and breathe upwards to gain altitude. The Feywild below glitters as far as the eye can see. It looks like the entire forest has been decorated for a bizarre celebration of light. From this height, the collective illumination allows for a view of the terrain's topography. Party members float over, under, and to the side of each other, constantly shifting positions with air currents and Vanimar's assistance. As we're flying, I gaze out west, trying to see if I can find where exactly the corruption begins. Far, far ahead of them is an abrupt end to the tree line, followed by a massive gap of darkness. Beyond the darkness, the area appears to have an ethereal, aurora borealis-like shimmer, only with shades of red. The colors seem to hang in the air, with no direct source of illumination slowly twisting and changing shape. The short vegetation there looks stunted and dark compared to the majesty of the rest of the Feywilds below. Looking further into the distance, Barris sees something he saw from the world wall. What he thought was a distant mountain now looks like a massive, almost mushroom-like tree. The full moon mostly silhouettes the tree but a sliver of reflection hints at an extremely intricate webbing of branches, leaves, moss, and mycelial matting, all growing in perfect harmony with itself. Varys can only imagine its splendor from up close. Looking up, Varys once again sees dense constellations of stars above. For a moment, his mind gets an eerie sense of dizziness. The stars almost look like a mirror image of the glowing Feywild below, as if reflecting off of the surface of an upside-down black lake which spans the entire sky. More confusing still are the groups of constellations which seem to move in unison. Some seem to join with others and augment them. Some seem to be attacking others. The mystifying view of the gleaming forest below and the celestial display above leaves even Sybil Silvertongue at a loss for words. 
No song, story, or work of art could possibly capture the grandeur of this shared experience. <laughs> After some time, the trees below give away to an area with a much squatter group of trees with bunches of luminescent fruit at their crown. Look away, west of us, where the tree line stops. Uh, that is where the corruption begins, I think. Beyond there, it's hard to see. But it looks desolate. Vanimar swoops underneath everyone and breathes upwards, lifting the seed pods higher for a better view. He points to the glowing red shimmer in the far distance. That is the blight. It is difficult to see in the dark. But even during the day, there is a sense of gloom there. I would not recommend going. Stay as far from there as you can. Vanimar! What is that mushroom tree to the north of us? That is the Chakora tree. We are now flying over the groves. Many fruit trees grow here. You will find more help here if you need it. More beings tend to gather here. Venomar pumps his butterfly-like wings to gain altitude directly above the seed pods. This is going to be a more difficult part of the journey. Difficult house! Continuing to flap his wings above everyone, the force of the wind begins to sharply push the seed pods downward. The force of the movement causes the pods to shake and rotate uncontrollably. Flying is easy. Landing is far more difficult for you. Vanimar once again curls his wings to create a slipstream, only this time he is steeply angled to the ground, almost in a nosedive. The glowing fruit below approaches rapidly. The seed pods begin to shake. Just hang on. Hang on. I brace myself against the seed. The ground is rising fast to meet them. Individual fruit within the clusters are now visible. At the last moment, just at the top of the trees, Vanimar spreads his wings wide and catches the air. The wind generated from this maneuver both slows him down and pushes back on the descending seed pods, reducing their speed. Vanimar quickly tucks in his wings and extends an arm in his legs. One claw safely holds Keybacks up as he lands, skidding and leaving a long trail of plowed earth behind him. This is the best view I've had all day. <laughs> Vanimar opens his claw and places Peabacks on the ground. He then turns his head behind him. They should land somewhere around here, I think. The high speeds have caused the seed pods to twist and dip unpredictably. Syndra is the first to approach the treetops. Gripping her rope, she times the release of her slipknot just as the first branch impacts. She leaps as the seed pot is wrenched away from beneath her. Still hurtling towards the ground, she reaches up with one hand for a branch and powerfully swings herself forward, altering her trajectory. In midair, she tucks her legs and arms into a backflip, then untucks just before hitting the ground, sliding forward in a partial kneeling position. Varys and Sybil's seed pods are rapidly spinning as they crash into the trees. They hold their hands out, trying to control their chaotic fall. Branches poke and slap at them, slowing their descent. Moments later, by the graces of snagged clothing and awkward grips, they stop. 
caught up in the trees like flies in a web. They look up to see Yi wildly spitting out of control. She smashes into the top of a tree, splattering the fluorescent juices of the conglomerated fruit everywhere. A tree branch slams into her core, resulting in an uncontrolled ejection from the seed pod. She continues to tumble down, knocked around by thick tree branches until she finally lands hard on the ground. My goodness, Gia, are you okay? Peabax runs over to Gee. She is absolutely saturated in what looks like a glowing cascade of light blue, green, and yellow paints. He kneels beside her and gently places a shining gauntlet on her shoulder. Getting up, I begin to brush myself off and... Whoa, whoa. There's fruit, juice, slime all over me. As I'm hanging from the tree, I catch eyes with Sybil. It was a fun ride. I'll see you at the bottom. Excelsior! Varys decides to use Step of the Wind, an ability which allows him to move along vertical surfaces without falling. He unwedges himself from the branches that caught him and surfs down the side of the tree. Oh, here! Over here! Thank you! <laughs> ah. Sybil climbs down the tree. A diminutive glowing figure moves towards them. It's Guy, who is covered head to toe in glowing, polychromatic goo. Peabax recalls her reticence to take this trip in the first place and gets an idea. I walk over to Guy and give her a giant hug so all of the juices rub off on my suit and then it's shiny clean once again. Peabax embraces Guy. When he pulls away, her clothing only has slight traces of the glowing juice where it has seeped into the fabric. Peabax's armor, on the other hand, is still inexplicably crystal clear, devoid of any juice, dirt, or grime. You're at least drier now. <laughs> Are you... you don't... there's nothing on you. There's plenty on me. There's nothing on you. I know, dear. That's why I gave you the hug in the first place, so it would touch me and then fall straight off the armor. I cannot be tainted, you see. Why? How? I don't know. It just works. Don't ask. The fruit at the tops of the trees glow bright, creating something analogous to street lanterns, illuminating the surrounding area. I'll take bioluminescent fruit over lamp any day. Hey, what? Vanimar, is this... Just a camp for the rest of the night, or is this where we're parting ways? Camp? No. I intend to walk the rest of the way. It is not far, and, well, having you all land there would have been somewhat distasteful. The entrance I will be taking is not far. Are we going to the fairy court? No. You must have an invitation to go there. I will be going. We head north to that large tree that we saw. Sindra turns to the north and freezes. They are not alone here. Several green-skinned humanoids move behind the trees. They are small and spindly, only slightly taller than Guy. Their hair is red and forms up onto a point at the top of their heads. Thorny, wooden swords hang from their waists. In their hands are longbows, with arrows knocked but not drawn. They slowly come out from behind the trees, surrounding the group. 
I ready my weapon. Perhaps violence would not be necessary. Are these creatures that you know, Vanima? I know of them, and they know of me. Creatures? What creatures? I draw my bow, ready an arrow. Everyone watch yourselves. It looks like these are thorns. They're protectors of the Feywild. I've never seen one in person, but of course I've heard stories. I'm impressed that you've heard of them. I collect stories. Vanimar turns to the thorns and addresses them in Sylvan, their native tongue. They are not enemies of yours, or your weapons. They do not come here to cause harm. I recognize the language being spoken, and I speak back. We're simply looking for the Chikora fruit. One of the thorns relaxes his grip on his weapon. The others slowly follow suit. I relax my hold on my weapon. Donor yesa chikora. The chikora fruit. Why do you seek that, outsider? It seems your blight has seeped into our realm. So we seek the chikora fruit in a... Well, it's our only thought of an attempt to to push it back. Yes, a chikora, the chikora fruit. You are quite a distance from it if that's what you are seeking. This direction? Yes, you These are the wrong fruits. He gestures towards the glowing fruits atop the trees. I can tell. And I look down at myself. One thorn is widely grinning at Guy. I tried my best to clean her, I promise. My common. Not good. You understand? Yes, we understand. Good. I am hesitant to allow you. Permit you? You seek the fruit. Going by yourself? Ah. He looks at the others to his side, and then looks back at the party. You can cause trouble, and we would not have that. Not in Everwood. When outsiders come, trouble always follows. Would you then uh, escort us? Uh, escort? He looks back to his group with a confused look on his face, slightly shaking his head, not understanding the question. One of the thorns steps forward and responds to him, translating the question. Gellion, Ned. There are pairs. Ismic patrol. Patrol near the river. Stream? Many well for the same thing. Um, patrol. They lead you? They, they take you? They... Ah. There's a patrol near the border near the river that separates the Everwood from the Blight. If you meet with them, they can lead you to the mushroom bath that will lead you straight to the Chikora tree. All right, that sounds like a good plan. We'd like to meet up with your patrol. Uh, what would we be looking for, and who would we tell them sent us? The thorn turns and translates the question. Tell them you have Sarin's blessing. 
they will trust you then. Pazzo. He looks up to Vanimar. Yes, you Tava. Have they caused trouble since? They are good people, I think. We would show you the way, but we must guard the circle. Where do we find this patrol? If walk west. He points out into the darkness. It will bring you to a river. Follow river and you will um, meet into them. I can spare one to bring you that way. Yes, yes, that would be greatly appreciated. He looks towards the thorn who has been translating and smirks. <laughs> you know that language. You will go with them. The thorn reluctantly nods his head. He doesn't look happy about his new assignment. How many number in your patrol? Here, there are seven. By the river, there are two. Just two? You call that a patrol? His face stiffens. Would you accept one of them to be your guide now that I must leave you? And one more thing before you go, Vanimar. You mentioned the face circles. You, you, you said they were transportation or... Yes. Vanimar looks up to the sky. Only under a full moon do they activate. Perhaps it is fortunate that you woke me on this night. But I must go before the full moon fades. How are they used? I do not know the depths of their magic. I simply know that when one stands within the circle and the moon is in the right phase, they are transported to the Fey Courts or back. That was my question on the courts themselves. If we are caught on our journey, will we be dragged before the court? Vanimar tilts his head in confusion. Caught doing what? Yes, Peabax, caught doing what? Caught doing what, Peabax? I step away from him. Now be quiet, I'm sorry. Vanimar's long neck bends until his massive head is face to face with Peabax. What? Is your intention on finding the fruit? Uh, a simple, noble intent, I assure you. I think what Peabax is trying to say is that, um, well, historically, the Fae folk uh, haven't always shown themselves to be trustworthy um, uh, or, or upfront with, with their intentions. And so I think he meant caught... Uh, you know, and, and a misunderstanding might ensue. And, uh, and, and of course that won't happen because, as he stated, we do, in fact, have noble intentions. My only concern was that we were never to offend them. You understand? Never to offend, only to cooperate. Vanimar pauses, then nods and lifts his head back up. <sighs> My apologies. Apologies for myself as well. I did not make myself initially as clear as I could have. I did not mean to offend. Venomar flashes a toothy grin. It is fine. The thorn who speaks broken common squints at the group and tightens his grip on his bow. Untrustworthy. It is well known, this selfishness of men. Well, of course you're not wrong. Overall, yes, men are... Men are... Quite selfish. 
I believe that it's simply a, a difference in language. What my traveling companion means is that because we don't necessarily tend to understand each other, we can have disagreements or communicational slip-ups. And so you, you may think one thing is happening and yet something else does, you see. Maybe I speak wrong. Mankind, people, outsiders. Yes, yes, I agree. Mankind is quite selfish, driven by greed often. So I understand that most of the time they don't have the purest of intent. Just like I know that your reputation as being untrustworthy is also wrong. Ah, so you are not then driven by greed. Just as I am sure that you are not untrustworthy. I, for one, would gladly trust you to guide us through the woods. Agreed! Vanimar grins widely. Should we go? Go, yes. I certainly must. Thank you again for disturbing my slumber. It was very fortuitous. You're welcome. So lovely to meet you. Yeah. Vanimar bows his large head. Good to meet you all as well. I wish you a safe journey. Good travels. Till we meet again. Venomar turns and starts to lumber back through the grove. Most of the thorns continue to watch the group suspiciously before following Venomar, mumbling things to each other beneath their breath. Only the thorn who spoke fluent common remains. This is going to make quite the song someday. The thorn perks up. Song? Oh yes, I'm a musician and a storyteller. I know few man songs. Would it be appropriate if I played something as we walk? I would wait until day. Night is when less trustworthy fate in the flock. The thorn puts his bow on his back. He walks to the edge of the grove before turning around. Yes, follow then, and don't... don't wander off. Yeah, what was your name? My name is Makrath. Thank you, Makrath. I am he. I follow Makrath. I follow the group, taking last position to keep watch on, on our rear. They begin to trek through the dimly illuminated woods. Every once in a while, Makrath will stop and point something out to the group. One tree has fruit that twists and slowly starts to slide down the tree on its own accord. It almost looks like it's floating. What's that? What's that one about? There are many creatures who can hide themselves in low light. In the darkness, you won't know what's touching you until it's already bitten you. Macrath turns to look at Guy. Snakes? Other failings? Darklings? I look at Macrath. I wonder if he knows. If if he was there with Ray and Kovkov. Uh-uh. Stay close. Keep your eyes open. I keep an eye out around us. Makras' gait is less of a casual walk and more of a slink. Like a hunter, he moves from tree to tree, very careful about where he steps. Everyone tries to follow in his wake while simultaneously watching out for threats. It turns out to require a lot of focus to not trip in the near darkness while watching out for signs of invisible stalkers. Varys, 
Gee, and Sendra easily maneuver through the terrain as if it was second nature. Sybil and Peabax, untrained in the ways of hunting, have a more difficult time keeping up. Oh! Mercy! Oh, there's another one of those pesky roots! Oh. Macrath stops and looks behind, a slight look of annoyance on his face. Maybe we should stop. Wait for a day. Sure, if you're tired or having trouble keeping up pace, we can stop. McGrath squints at Guy, then looks to Peabax from the side of his eyes. I worry that some of you will attract unwanted attention. Yes, some of us aren't trained to move as stealthily through the forest. I look around at the party. Indeed. McGrath looks into the distance. There's a place where we can stay for the night. Not far, not far. Come, come. Good, we can have maybe a fire and a quick bite. I follow. After a short while, they are led to a small spot where the ground goes under itself, creating a sort of small, shallow cave. It is low profile, with only enough room for several people to crouch at once. Here, this will do for the night. Wow, that's good shelter. It will be tight for some of you, but yes. I curl up against the wall of the alcove. McGrath gestures for everyone to stay. I'll be back in a moment. I enter the cave and make myself comfortable. I stay at the mouth, watching our guide wander off. I'll see about starting a fire. Are you sure that's wise? I don't know that, uh... That you should leave the cave after Makroth specifically said to stay in it. If I promise to stay within sight, do you feel comfortable with me leaving? No. I think I'll stay then. Okay. Sybil feels a little bit of a pressure on her shoulder. Hey, scoot over. (laughs) Still too dark to see clearly, a small form jumps from her shoulder and lands on the ground behind Peabacks. Watch out, Peabax! I turn around! Hey, whoa, hold it! I'm at you! Wait, what? What are you? What are you? What are you? The tiny creature jumps and lands on Varys's head. Varys makes an attempt to grab it. Whoa, wait! It jumps and evades Varys's grasp, only to hit its head on the low ceiling. Ow! It falls into Varys's hands. Oh. oh! Forgive us, are we in your home? I mean, you're on it. Ow! He jumps back down and lands in front of Sybil. Would you mind? I get up and I look down around us at our feet. The ground has an earthy texture and brassy color. The insect gestures at Sybil to move. I look down at my feet to see what he's talking about. I step one foot to the side. Here? Thank you. He walks over, allowing everyone to see him a little more clearly. He looks like a grasshopper but with a humanoid torso and head coming out of it. The head is still somewhat insectoid. The being before them resembles a diminutive grasshopper centaur. He sticks out one of his long, thin legs into the ground and uses it to open up what looks like a little trap door. Oh, Oh, I see. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's great. What are you doing on my porch? Hiding. We just wanted a bit of shelter, yes. Uh, okay. You gonna be leaving soon? Yes. I think there's enough space for all of us to share, is there not? Yes? I mean, could you be quiet? Certainly, I'm sorry. Thank you. 
The insect centaur dives beneath the trapdoor, closing it behind him. Good night. I guess we should keep it down. A large, glowing light approaches the entrance from the darkness. It is Makrath carrying an armful of mixed fruits. He crouches and places them just inside of the mouth of the cave. I sample the fruits. Thank you, Makrath. The fruits are extremely tasty and sweet. They are very juicy, causing the occasional glowing stripe of juice to run down shins. Thank you so much for the food. You're welcome. What do you... uh, Why... Why why are you whispering? We're just being polite. We... I guess a a, a small creature lives here. Makrath slowly pulls out his sword, which looks like it's made of thorns growing out of a central stem. Hmm. What kind of creature? A sort of strange insect, wasn't it? I looked to everyone else. Yes, it was about yay big and kind of half grasshopper, half tiny person. Yes, exactly. Ugh. He puts his sword away. Grig. I make myself comfortable and stretch. <sighs> what a weird day. Yes. I'll take first watch. And good night to the rest of you. Sleep sound and safe. Wake me when it's my turn. Four hours into her watch, Sendra notices something in the darkness. She sees a creature crawling low to the ground. Squinting her eyes, she sees that the creature isn't actually crawling, but looks huddled up. It looks more like it is being dragged along the floor. Every once in a while, she sees it kick out against nothing. A strange, serpentine trail is left behind. I'm just gonna be quiet. The creature looks vaguely sentient. Sindra can see the fear in its eyes as it is slowly dragged away. Eventually, the grass stops moving as the creature disappears into the darkness. I wake Varys for his turn at watch. Varys, wake up. Mm, Yes. Is it time? Yes. Be vigilant. There are invisible creatures in this wood. I saw one pass by the mouth of our cave. Wait. Wait. You saw an invisible creature? Yes. I saw its dinner in its belly as it moved across the ground. Ah, well, I'll be vigilant so none of us becomes a visible meal. Not long after Sendra lays down, Varys notices movement. Then, amidst the glow of nocturnal flowers and plants, he sees an unmistakable pair of bright yellow eyes with cat's pupils. The eyes look to the side, signaling another pair of eyes. Scanning the area, Varys sees at least two more sets of eyes floating in the darkness. After watching them for a while, he sees that they are circling around their position, sniffing the air. I make myself small and hard to see. They stop in their tracks. One set of eyes looking off into the darkness slowly turns its head toward Varys. It makes eye contact. Just beneath the eyes, a sharp, toothed grin spreads wide. The other eyes snap to Varys. One begins to slowly make its way towards him, the smile widening more as it approaches. Seeing the creatures start to approach, I kick back at whoever is sleeping behind me to wake them. I don't want to make more noise than I have to. Uh, Wake up! What? Wake up! 
What? Creatures are approaching. And I start to ready my bow and like slowly, like slow motion, try to get an arrow and knock it. I crawl to the mouth of the cave, grabbing my crossbow and readying it. They see four forms in the darkness, the floating grin moving towards them and three creeping forms lurking to the sides. As they pass through the dappled moonlight, Varys and Sendra can make out vaguely feline forms. We've gotten the attention of all of them now. I have to act fast. I'll shoot one and wake the party. Seeing Varys primed and ready, Sendra takes the first shot, hitting one of the creatures in its shoulder. After striking a blow, I creep through the opening of the cave, pulling myself around the corner and hide in the brush. Upon hearing the shriek, the malevolent faces start immediately moving faster towards the cave, knowing for certain that there is food inside. The hunt has begun. As I rise to my feet and step out of the cave entrance, I draw my bow and take aim on the one hit by my comrade. The ear-piercing screech unsettles Varys. He looses his arrow, which just misses the feline figure and impales a glowing fruit to the side of the tree. The glowing liquid makes intricate patterns as it flows down the bark. The creature Varys faces is no longer grinning. Seeing my first shot go wide, I take another. Varys emerges from the cave and rights himself, slowly strafing to the side. He draws back another arrow and lets it loose. The arrow burrows deep into the side of the creature near Sindra's bolt. The creature just off to the side looks at Varys, still grinning. Suddenly the grin splits. The two grins split again and again. The creature appears to be in multiple places at once. Three of the creatures do this, except the injured one, who is too distracted by the pain. The creatures are now surrounded by shadowy images of themselves. Before Varys can process what is happening, a dark tendril slams into his back from nowhere and claws downwards, ripping into his flesh. Before Varys can recover, a second sharp tendril strikes his back. Though it doesn't rip flesh, the percussive force of the attack makes Varys lurch forward. Varys stumbles as another black tendril shoots out and wraps around his neck, then tears away. Varys feels flesh being stripped from the side of his neck as he falls to his knees. The creature with the arrow sticking from its side dives behind a tree and fades into its shadow. However, its illusionary images remain floating and shifting around it. Oh, shit. McGrath springs from the small cave, jumping and twisting in the air while knocking an arrow in one fluid motion. He spins around, firing an arrow just before landing. One of the felines shudders as the arrow pierces its body. Its illusions immediately disappear. Varys is on his knees in a wide open clearing, grasping his throat. Blood trickles down from between his fingers. I awake to the sound of struggles, and I hear my friend scream. Varys is hurt. I close my eyes and I reach out my hand. Heal Varys. Varys seems to gain some composure. He tries to rise, but weakly falls back to his knees. He grasps his neck with one hand as he uses the other to stabilize himself on the ground. After I see he's no longer critical, I realize there's a fight happening outside. I know that I have to do damage. I try to find the perfect place to cast a spell. Grinning creatures, you've attempted to harm my friends in the dark. So now you'll feel pain, feel pain. Static crackles as bright blue sparks. Sybil tries to capture two of the creatures in an area attack, although it's difficult to be sure she isn't attacking a shadow copy. 
Magical blue electricity arcs and dances through the creatures. Orange patches briefly glow on their bodies as their fur singes into smoke. They scurry off to the sides, not appearing as wounded as Sybil would like them to be. Their grins fade as the eyes blink, dazed. Only one creature has the spiraling illusion in effect. Syndra reaches into a pouch, producing a small ball of wax and red glass bead with what looks like liquid fire inside. She attaches the bead to the wax, then places the wax on the tip of a crossbow bolt. Wasting no time, she brings the crossbow up, aims, and fires. The bolt lands between two creatures and explodes, lighting up the night in an orange hue. Two of the cat creatures are caught within the fiery explosion, only to leap out, their fur singed and smoking. A nearby tree lights up and catches on fire, casting Varys in a silhouette. The air around him quivers with heat as his entire body recoils. Pebax awakens. He sits up and pokes his head out. I open my eyes, not completely understanding what I'm seeing. There's a tree on fire and a bunch of evil dark things surrounding my compatriots. So, I see two of them stand near the ground. I will cast hold on one of them so as to help my companion. I focus, looking at my friends in peril. I cast Bless. I put my fingers to my forehead and concentrate. Light sparkles emanate from my fingers and meet my friends. What looked like tiny stars leave Peabax's gauntlets and swirl around his companions, causing them to appear to have a faint, otherworldly glitter. He looks suspiciously at Peabax. If, if, if I could make it look different, I would. I honestly, it, it looks a bit silly. Uh, sorry. I wait in the hollow in order to see the entire field of battle at once. Watching Varys weakly reach for his bag of potions, Peabax realizes he's left it behind in the hollow. Varys continues to grasp his neck, apparently losing strength. His body convulses, then collapses to the ground, unmoving. Peabax believes he has just witnessed Varys's final breath. I see Varys surrounded by four cat-like creatures. I pull out from my component pouch a tiny fan. I need a feather of exotic origin for this spell, so I run over to Peabax. I pluck the rock feather from his shoulder, point towards the cat creatures, and shout. I call the wind to aid our fight. Raise up these foes, upset their flight. He traces an area in the air with the feather, and a massive wall of wind erupts around Varys' body, catching all of the cat creatures within it. Two of them are pushed away and tumble across the ground, crashing into thick tree trunks. The other two begin to rise, but dig their front claws into the ground. They manage to avoid flying away. They awkwardly claw their way to the side, out of the area of effect. Upon landing, they run crookedly in opposite directions. The wind didn't seem to harm them, but appears to have had an effect on them. I watch as two of the creatures get blown to the side by my spell, two remaining unharmed. I run towards them, unsheathing my rapier. The two dizzy cats shift their attention from Varys to the smaller, frailer creature running towards them. She may not be as tasty, but she is alive. The hunt continues. I notice the creatures start to run towards ye. Do not touch her! They pull apart quickly, but one attempts another attack. Gi tumbles backwards out of the way, the tendril whizzing by her face. One of the cats grins and looks back to Varys. It then begins pushing through the wind wall towards him. 
A dark tendril attempts a swipe at Varys' body from the wind wall, but twists backward, unable to make contact. The cat surges forward, trying to push ahead. Another cat has decided to try to get to Varys before its brethren. Its smile fades into a hard frown as it lunges toward Varys. It too is repelled away. The first cat, emboldened by the competition, shakes its head to try to clear itself of the static confusion. It leaps at the wind wall and flies upwards. Its forward momentum is enough to push it through this time and it lands within the circle of the wind. Almost fully visible due to the fire, its body looks like a big cat but has six legs and a group of tendrils sprouting from its back. The edge of its form seems to be part shadow, part smoke. Its grin wider than ever, a tentacle winds up into the air and comes down hard on Varys' head. The tentacle scrapes upon his face, slashing it to ribbons. Still, he remains unmoving. The cat's grin is accented by the fire as it slowly approaches Varys and opens its maw. Is something fun, King? The cat is struck by Sybil's spell, causing it to collapse in uncontrollable spasms of laughter. The cat rolls on the ground, laughing. It has a psychotic look on its face. Syndra looks to the side and sees a cat sneaking up behind Guy. As I take my aim at the beast looming over Guy, I hold my breath, wait for the perfect moment, and release my arrow. The bolt flies through Guy's wild, matted hair and into the creature behind her. The beast yells as my bolt hits true. I make eye contact with it. It stops smiling. As its smile fades, mine grows, and I step back into the shadows. Things have changed so rapidly. Peabax returns his attention to his fallen companion. He saw the blood fly after the last strike, but he could have sworn he saw a small twitch. Not the kind of twitch dead bodies are prone to. Peabax has seen enough of that to know the difference. My friend yet breathes. He looks worse for the wear, but... He lives, somehow. Holding on to the hope that Varys is feigning death, Peebax sprints towards him, even though there are still foes lurking in the area. With reckless abandon, Peebax pushes his way through the wind wall. He is heavy enough not to be pushed down or away, but feels the wind billowing through the joints in his armor. Through sheer force, he steps through the wind wall. I push through the gust, collapse onto my friends and family. I cast cure wounds. Pebax touches a finger to Varys's chest, and a light seems to emanate from within Pebax's gloves. Varys's mangled face clots over into lines of thick, rough-looking scabs. Pebax protects Varys's body by covering it with his own, careful not to put too much weight on him. He waits until the spell completes before addressing Varys. Stay right where you are. Don't you dare move. I feel life entering me again. But Pebex, I guess I'll wait for his next signal. He twirls around in time to see a cat creature collapse behind her, Sendra's crossbow bolt sticking out of its neck. She turns around, unable to see her. Out of the corner of her eye, she senses a grin, which leaps out at her. Before she can react, three thorny arrows rapidly impale the cat, knocking it to the side. He steps out of the way as the cat's body skids past where she was standing. Oh, Guy scans her immediate surroundings, seeing another shadowy figure gaining speed towards her. She turns to face it. With renewed vigor, I lash out at the creature in front of me with my rapiers. 
The cat leaps at Yi, its grinning mouth wide and salivating. Yi falls to her back and stabs upward as the cat flies above her. The wolf strikes, stab the cat in its chest. Dark blood sprays across Yi's face as she pulls her rapiers from the creature's body. Still alive but writhing in pain, it retreats to be closer to its compatriots. With my final two blows, I notice the hunt go out of the cat's eyes. I think these two will leave us now. The cats look torn up from burns and slashes. One of them is still on the ground, laughing uncontrollably. Some of them sporadically shake their heads, trying to clear up Sybil's psychic spell. Still not defeated, the group now turn and begin trotting towards Guy. <laughs> Looking up, Guy sees Hee-Hoo-Hoo's spindly form gripping a branch. I send Hee-Hoo-Hoo over to the remaining combatants. Hee-Hoo-Hoo melds into the branch he is gripping, then emerges from a different branch directly above one of the cats. He drops down, slashing at its back. <laughs> Spooked, the cats scatter while Hee-Hoo-Hoo leaps into a tree. Two of the cats retreat, running as fast as they can away from the battle. Wanting to protect Varys from the remaining two enemies, Guy attempts to cross the wind wall. With her back turned, one of the cats leaps out of the shadows and slashes at her. A tendril lashes out and connects with her back, scraping needle points across her clothes and skin as she is picked up by the wind beneath her. Because she is so light, she is pushed up into the air, then lands within the circle next to Peabacks and Varys. Hee-hoo-hoo scurries to the creature that just attacked Guy, slashing at it with his long claws. The cat limps away quickly, then drags its head on the ground, still affected by Sybil's spell. Hee-hoo-hoo moves in to attack a flurry of limbs and claws just barely visible in the firelight. The cat then retreats fully into the darkness. Within the fading wind wall, the cat that has been laughing maniacally shakes its head hard and snaps out of it. Smoke and steam rises from patches on its sides and back. Seemingly unfazed by its laughing spell, it grins, which duplicates again and again. Its shadow copies swirl around like a kaleidoscopic image. I want this smiling cat to join its friends, so I approach it and take out my rapiers and attack. A thorny arrow screams from the darkness and pierces the cat's chest. Its smile completely fades. Peabax looks at the flattened grass where it had been rolling and laughing and notices specks of dark blood. The cat is on the ground, unable to rise. Peabax reaches for his flail while standing, putting himself between the wounded cat and Varys. The cat is on the ground looking at Peabax. It knows the hunt. It knows the hunt is life. It knows it has been hunted down. It smiles up at Peabax, thrilled to be a part of the hunt. As I rise up, stand in front of this hideous cat monster, I bring my flail down at skull, crushing it into pieces. Skull and teeth shatter in different directions. As it dies, the remaining shadow copies fade, as well as the shadow smoke effect that broke up its form. Now fully visible, it resembles a sleek, muscular, six-legged panther with two monstrous tentacles erupting from its back. At the end of the tentacles are triangular tips with downward curving claws. Macroth approaches the group from behind. Unseely, a dangerous beast indeed. You did well, very well against an entire pack. He looks to Varys, still on his back. Your wounds should be treated. 
They're not venomous, but there are many things in these woods attracted to the scent of blood. <sighs> With the fight over, I look up towards Pebex to thank him for saving my life. But before the words can come out, I see the reflection of my mangled face. Oh. A strange look flashes across Varus's face. It's hard to guess what the expression means, as most of his features are either covered in blood, dirt, or scabs. He remains composed. Well, I don't think my Nan would recognize me. But you live. I don't have a spare helmet. I put a hand on my friend's shoulder. All adventurers have scars. McGrath turns to the burning tree. Do you have a way of fixing your problem here? What problem? I smile sarcastically. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. I'm going to find a spring. Well, this seems a bit excessive, but... Sybil faces the tree and extends her hand. The air glows and spherical vibrations grow from the night air. Forty pounds of bread, cheese, and water materialize and rain down on top of the tree, extinguishing the fire. The smoke and steam curls around itself, forming patterns of pained faces that drift off on the breeze. I, I could definitely use a bit more rest. Do we think we should make camp here again? Or perhaps move a bit further down? We should move. As I said, there are many creatures here that are attracted to the smell of blood. And if we leave this here, not to mention the rest of the blood that was spilled on the ground, we will have more visitors tonight. Yes, that seems smart. I gather my things to prepare camp in another place. I do lead the way if you know of a more suitable place not soaked in blood. As I pack my things before we leave, I pull out a small jar from my bag. Varys. Yes? Use this sparingly on your wounds on your face. Many thanks to you. As the group packs, I gingerly apply the salve to my tattered face. I can feel its healing powers work almost instantly. The thick scabs on Varys's face crack and fall to dust, revealing a streak of thin, white scars traversing his face. They reach from behind his head all the way to the corner of his lip, nose, and chin. I pack my things in preparation to follow. Hey, hey, stay close to me. Watch the trees. If you see anything moving, speak up. I ready my bow and keep an open eye. I keep an eye on the woods around us. They begin to walk away from the destroyed area. Hee-hoo-hoo catches up to Gee and begins speak laughing to her. She responds, and as the chuckle conversation progresses, Gee looks more and more serious. After a while, McGrath exasperatedly turns around and jabs a finger at Hee-hoo-hoo. Why'd you keep him quiet? Quiet for now, Hee-hoo-hoo. I hold my arm out and get the party to stop. Hee-hoo-hoo has met someone in the forest. He says that she appears to be a little girl, that she was kind to him, and that she knows the way to the mushroom path. What would a little girl be doing all alone in the forest? Well, that was my question, and apparently she's carrying a doll and a basket for truffles. Maybe she was looking for them, but I also... It may not be as it appears. Just like everything else in this place. Right. He can bring us to her if we want to go. Yes, this girl. We're not going to find her tonight. 
We have to be cautious, and we have to move quickly. If you go searching in the morning, I doubt she'll be in the same place. What if he who, who returns and brings her to us? If you communicate that to him quietly... Yes. I think it would be good for them to meet us at wherever we set up our next camp. All right. I'll let him know where we're going and... Do you know where you're going? Well, uh... All right. We'll have him come with us. We'll set up camp, and then we'll have him go out to get her. Sounds good? That is the best course of action, yes. Then come. McGrath continues to stalk through the woods, looking for a safe place. Ahead is a tree that is absolutely bustling with glowing fruit. McGrath walks a wide circle around it, passing it far to the right. I follow in his exact footsteps. I carefully follow McGrath around the tree. As they pass by the tree, the glowing fruit sprouts long, gangly legs and begins crawling down the tree trunk. McGrath picks up his pace and moves faster, beckoning the others to do the same. Come, come. I hurry after McGrath. Not too much longer after, everyone enters a clearing. Ahead is a row of very smooth stones on the ground. McGrath passes to the other side of the row of stones and immediately slows down, giving a big sigh of relief. <sighs> McGrath, what were those things? Insects. You have things like them, yes? In your mortal world. Things that look like twigs or leaves. These are very venomous. And they pretend to be something that many of you here would find edible and appealing. Ah, yes. Camouflage. Indeed. But here we are safe. I did not think we would come across us so soon. This is a protected circle. This clearing is invisible to the Unseelie, to the Shadelings, the Dark Fae. They cannot see past this place and are averted by it. You used that word earlier whenever you were looking at the beast that attacked us. Unseelie. What does that mean? It is one of the courts of the Fae, though an undesirable one. They are cruel, dangerous. The creature there that you slew, it may not have been a pet of theirs, but they do keep those as hunting animals. The way they break them, it's unfortunate to watch. Is there a possibility that they would send somebody to come hunt us? Only if they knew of your presence. Hunting mortals in the Fey Realm? Oh, they would jump at the chance, yes. But I do not think they know you are here, nor do I think that was one of theirs. Simply a wandering wild pack. But here, the Unseelie, the Shadelings, they cannot sense you. This is an enchanted place. They're averted from it. There's a sense of repulsion to them. They will not come near nor cross the stone barrier. And how do they feel about iron? McGrath pauses and looks at Guy incredulously. They dislike it, much as all fake creatures do. McGrath walks a bit further into some tall grass which comes up to his mid-thigh. He stops, spreads his arms, and falls backward, <sighs> disappearing under the brush. I jump into the tall grass, spread all of my limbs, and flop down! <laughs> the grass feels particularly soft, like feathers. It is stiff enough to offer some resistance to the ground. I look at the rest of the group, and I jump in as well. Well, here goes nothing. McGrath, E, and Sybil gaze up at the twinkling stars, which continue to move in subtle, 
mysterious ways as the celestial dance unfolds. Oh, wow. You should see the river at night. It reflects the sky so perfectly. I look around in the dark. I don't see any risk at the moment. Uh, I flop down in the grass with the rest of them. <laughs> My armor slides around on the grass, impervious to its softness. McGrath turns to his side and begins to slumber. Only Sindra and Varys remain standing. I look towards the last remaining party member who has not gotten comfy. So, Sindra, uh, dagger parchment stone for who gets watch? Go to sleep. Will do. And I fling myself into the tall grass. <gasps> the grass is prolific and tall enough to catch body heat, keeping those lying down warm. <laughs> With everyone settled, I look to he who and tell him to go find the girl. <laughs> Interesting. As the rest of the party settles down for the night, I take a spot just behind the grass line so I can see out and make sure everyone is safe while they slumber. Game Mastering by Tony Galliano. Narration by Thor Tempestus. Sybil Silvertongue is played by Mackenzie Paulus. Pebax is played by Marcus Freeman. Sendra is played by Sarah Mullins. Varys Longfeather is played by Bjorn Polehammer. Briobalope Gee Wrigglepuggle Dergpergturg is played by Thor Tempestus. Tony Galliano as Treoblade, Vanimar, and Hihuhu. Derek Davis as McGrath. David Bennett as Thorn Patrol Leader. Paul Greenleaf as Insectar, Green Man, and Corrupt Priest. Fay in the Wood Lullaby performed by Thor Tempestus. Editing and arrangement by Sarah Mullins, Marcus Freeman, and Paul Greenleaf. Scripting, original music, and production by Paul Greenleaf. Many thanks to the unpaid voice actors, Patreon supporters, the Sonic Realms team, and you, the listeners. This would not be possible without your participation and generosity. Wizards of the Coast has sole ownership of the names, logo, artwork, marks, photographs, sounds, audio, video, and or any proprietary material used in connection with the game Dungeons & Dragons. Wizards of the Coast does not endorse and is not affiliated with Sonic Realms in any official capacity whatsoever. And hey, thanks for listening. Without warning, what sounds like a steed becomes audible behind her. She leaps and rolls backwards, unsheathing her knife, and lands into a crouched fighting pose. Before her is a single green man, riding what appears to be an overgrown horse, shrouded with vines and flowers. A pair of antlers rises out of a helmet the man on the horse is wearing. He rides through the barrier and into the hallowed area and stops. He looks down at Sandra, who is still coiled and ready to attack. 
The horse dips its mighty head to pull up some grass and lazily chews it. As it eats, it circles around Sundra, who rotates her position to match the horse's movements. He gets close to Sundra and stops. She shows no fear. He pauses, then slowly looks in the direction where the group is resting, then back to Sundra. The full moon is lined up behind his helmet and in between the antlers, simulating an ethereal halo. Keep her honest. I can sense the hatred. Keep her honest, or she will be hunted. And that she is also trying to find the mushroom park. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> Peabak awakens, hearing a static shock, then an ex- So you said Peabak. Oh. Not this. <laughs> I lick the blood off of my rapiers. <laughs> oh <my goodness. laughs> Don't put that in. Don't put that in. What am I listening to? Put that in. <laughs> so I can see out and make sure everyone is asleep. <laughs> The cat is struck by Sybil's spell, causing it to collapse in uncontrollable spasms of laughter. Something funny, bitch? You can trust me, says the mortal from afar, for I've tamed the wild and stared with the... (laughs) And I turn to return to... Wow, I turn to return to the camp. (laughs) I'm so good with words. I was like, yes, I feel new life in my, in my body. I'm going to fight again. No. You stay know, right there. Stay okay, there. Dr. Jordan's. All right, all right. Whatever. Whatever keeps uh, the blood in my face. <laughs> it does not feel soft at all to you. <laughs> you can't feel it. You're completely covered in metal. <laughs> my armor slides around on the grass, impervious to its softness. It's I don't it. see the big deal. <laughs> you can always take your armor off and just, and just keep, keep your helmet, helmet on. on. Never. Never. <laughs> and then you're going to take another two points of piercing damage as you just feel these needle-like points just jab into the back of your back skin and rip a little bit as you run away. Oh, hey! That's the... <laughs> okay. Oh, All right. Oh. I'll... I'll do better. I'll do better. <laughs> you inconvenienced me by stabbing me. Hey, now. You bitch. <laughs> oh. All right.